Radio Mano Papachango. My thought of the day is what the fuck is up with toilet brushes? I mean, how have we advanced to the point where we're manipulating genes and splitting fucking megons or whatever the hell it is we're splitting under Swiss mountains and particle accelerators? And yet we're, we still have a brush next to the toilet to wipe our shit off the side of the bowl. What is up with that? No one has come up with a toilet design that doesn't require us to wipe our shit off the side of the bowl. I don't know. I I do know, actually. Those of you who haven't traveled the world, as I have, probably think all toilets are the same, but they're not. Now, I've talked about uh, Asian squat toilets before, which are superior in pretty much every way, uh, especially in the fact that that's the way our body's designed to shit. So the toilet is built around our anatomical tendencies as opposed to us trying to fit our anatomical tendencies into some arbitrary and ridiculous fashion-driven design because some fucking king in the 1400s was too fat to squat like a normal person. So he had some palace engineer designed him a seat with a hole in it so he could just sit there and drop his royal turds without having to um, flex his hips Uh, and then suddenly that became the fashion for everybody else by the way I'm paraphrasing that I don't know about the actual dates but I do believe that's the uh, origin of the throne that most of us use these days Uh, what was my point oh Right. So we we're trying to fit our bodies into this weird design. Now, that's a metaphor for most of what I talk and think about uh, in terms of civilization, how we're trying to fit ourselves into this civilization that has um, been designed according to principles, uh, many of which are contrary to our organic evolved predisposition so i've talked about societal monogamy culturally imposed monogamy as one of those examples if you're not feeling particularly monogamous but your culture tells you that anything other than strict monogamy is some sort of cultural blasphemy you're not a good person you don't actually love your partner you've got uh peter pan complex you're uh a nymphomaniac, you know, whatever it is, then you try to fit yourself into that. And so, so much of what goes on in the modern world is equivalent to wearing those dumbass pointed shoes that so many people still wear. You fucking bankers out there with your shiny leather shoes that come to a point in the front. Your feet aren't shaped like that. And women walking around with high heels and getting their toes all fucked up in the in the in the name of what in the name of fashion? What is fashion? What the fuck is fashion? Uh, on that tangent, maybe I'll read something. I wasn't planning to read this. I was going to save this for the Roma. 
but it's so good and it does sort of uh, fit into what I was talking about right now. This is an essay called What You Can't Say. And I'm looking at it right now. It's uh, on a website, paulgram.com, P-A-U-L-G-R-A-H-A-M.com. I don't know who Paul Graham is. I don't even remember how I came across this essay. Maybe Hunter Matz told me about it, or maybe someone sent me an email. Frankly, I can't keep track of stuff. People are sending me music and sending me stuff to read and sending me books in the mail and all that. And like, I can't even keep up with consuming the stuff that people are sending me, much less remembering who the fuck sent it to me. So I apologize if you, in fact, sent this to me and you're not getting the shout out you deserve right now. But anyway, it's a really interesting essay called What You Can't Say. The basic point of the essay is that every society has these fashions uh, and taboos, which is sort of an anti-fashion, right? Uh, Fashion is telling you what's cool and a taboo is telling you what's not cool. Um, And that when we look back at other societies or look even across at other societies that exist today, but, um, you know, they're distant culturally, we can see things that are ridiculous, that just make no sense whatsoever. Um, You know, looking back, we can say... uh, the incubus and the succubus, the devil coming and fucking you at night or the witch trials at Salem or wearing those fucking powdered wigs in Mozart's time. Well, they still wear them in England, I guess, in courts. But I mean, it's just silly. It's ridiculous. Why are you doing that? It makes no sense. Uh, you know, looking uh, across at cultures, we can look at certain Middle Eastern cultures where women are being stoned to death for the the sin of having been raped, right? Um, the, the sort of insane oppression of women, the, the sexual abuse of children, clitorectomies, and so on. Uh, the examples are endless. And so the, the purpose of the essay is to say, okay, now everywhere we look, we see these ridiculous cultural conventions that make no sense and are destructive and and uh, distorting, how can we then look at ourselves and our own culture and see those things? It's very hard to do, right? It's like hearing your own accent or, you know, tasting your own mouth or smelling your nose. It's it's kind of conceptually impossible to, to do because the apparatus of detection is in fact the same apparatus that uh, promulgates these false beliefs. So it's a very difficult thing to do. It's something I come back to time and time again. Um, I refer to it as detribalization in many conversations, referring to, uh, I believe it was Joseph Campbell who coined the term where he talked about the hero's journey. Joseph Campbell, great mythologist, by the way. Check out The Power of Myth if you're unfamiliar with him. It's a series of um, videos available on YouTube. Joseph Campbell in conversation with Bill Moyers. Fantastic, interesting conversations. Uh, It was also made into a wonderful book called The Power of Myth. And Joseph Campbell's sort of seminal work is called The Hero with a Thousand Faces, in which he shows that every culture has this same story, which is... The story of the prodigal son and or daughter who goes out, leaves their culture, goes out into the world, has a series of adventures and lessons learned. And then at the end of the story returns 
back home with this knowledge to um, to enrich the society um, from which this person originated. So every culture has the story. And I think the reason every culture has the story is that on some deep, profound level, we all recognize that we're full of shit. We're all full of shit because we look around and we see that everyone else is full of shit. So we say, God, logically, it seems like then I must be full of shit too. Uh, and so there's this sort of instinctive hunger for a way of understanding how, what kind of shit am I full of, right? How do I know when I'm full of shit? Which is if you look at any teacher, any religious tradition worth its salt is that's what it's all about. It's, it's how do you figure out your own blind spots? It's easy to see everybody else's. How do you find your own? Anyway, this this essay, which is uh, quite interesting uh, in that pursuit, if you want to read it, it's what you can't say again. Uh, what he talks about is how many uh, sort of cognitive techniques for figuring these things out. Uh, I won't go into them here. I recommend you read it. But one of the things he says, which really struck a, a note with me, is he said, fashion is always started a new fashion is started by people who don't or making an effort not to be confused with the mainstream so it's started by someone or some subculture that's trying to distinguish themselves from the mainstream we're not like everyone else that's why we talk like this that's why we dress like this that's why we dance like this that's why we use this drug and not that drug that's why we listen to this band that's why you know we're hipsters we're not like normal people we're goths we're you know islamic fundamentalists we're jesuits we're you know whatever the fuck it is it's an attempt to say we're not like normal people right and then what happens is it becomes fashionable because it's cool not to be like normal people and then normal people of course immediately adapt that fashion because they're afraid to not be normal you see how it works? So it starts off with people who are afraid to be mistaken for the norm. And then it quickly becomes the norm and is populated by people who are afraid to be outside of the norm. They're, they're, so their impulse is exactly the opposite of the, the, of the impulse of the people who started the fashion. It's an interesting dynamic. And you can see it everywhere, right? You see it in what? In gentrification. You see it in intellectual uh, fashion. You see it where, you know, who has it said the first stage of any new idea is ridicule. And then or, or I guess the first stage was it, to ignore it and then you ridicule it and then you embrace it and then you claim it was your idea all along. Right. That seems to be how how uh, new ideas are absorbed into societies. Anyway, what got me started on this toilet brushes, I think. <laughs> that's a fucking tangent yes we're all full of shit and we all secretly think our farts are interesting and everyone else's stink right admit it admit it you think your farts are interesting yeah all right that's enough rambling for me uh but i do think that we should develop 
toilets that don't require toilet brushes. Now, I know in Japan they have them, but all these high-tech jets and air blowers and all sorts of stuff, I don't think we need that. I think there are ways to design toilets where your human or human or humanure humanure yeah that's a phrase i heard recently or word humanure um you know just hits a wet spot and doesn't stick to the dry then in holland they have very interesting toilet design which is there's like a little shelf with um a depression in it that holds a little bit of water just a little puddle of water and that's where your turd drops and then it it's like there for examination i think that's the idea i think it's if you want to take a look at your shit before you flush it away it's right there and you can you know see how your digestion's going see remember that great dinner you had last night with the sunflower seeds or whatever and um and then when you're ready, you flush it. And because it's sitting in that little puddle of water, it just all slides away, slip slides away, leaving no trace behind. Leave it to the Dutch, you know, such great designs. So I think we should all adopt. If we can't do the squat toilets, at least adopt the Dutch system. We don't have to have those raggedy, disgusting little toilet brushes everywhere. All right, I guess I should apologize to this week's guest for that somewhat disgusting intro. Ryan Cleek, Ryan Cleek, super cool guy. Uh, he's a bike racer, competitive um, mountain bike racer, BMX guy, uh, serious athlete, all-around athlete. He was into football and baseball, sort of uh, one of these naturally gifted motherfuckers. And uh, because of some uh, injuries he had, he he ended up doing the biking and then he got into uh, writing about biking and then he got into making documentary films about biking. And he's just uh, a guy who's pretty much good at whatever he tries. Bastard. Anyway, his, uh, he's a really nice guy. His, you can follow him on Instagram and Twitter. He's at Cleek and Destroy. That's C-L-E-E-K-N Destroy. And his film uh, that we talk about in, in this episode is Reach for the Sky, about a guy named Cam Zink, I believe his name was, um, who is uh, one of these dudes who does like, you know, backflips off ramps, off arches in Utah and over canyons and just like crazy death-defying stuff um really interesting guy and uh, ryan's known him since he was young they sort of have gone down the same paths in life ryan's probably 10 years older than uh, than cam is so he's a bit of a i get the sense there's a bit of a big brother little brother energy there and they're really close and uh ryan made this amazing film it's i've seen it it's incredible i'll put the trailer up at my website go to tangentiallyspeaking.com and you'll see it there Anyway, uh, that's uh, this week's guest, Ryan Cleek. I really enjoyed chatting with him. Other news, the van's going well. Hope to have it finished uh, by the time you hear this. Uh, we're coming down. We're putting up the paneling, coming down to the end, framing out the little kitchen area, put the sink in. 
got the water tank, got the bed all worked out, got the the hatch above the bed so you can lie in bed and look at the stars. That was my that was my most important thing. That in the hammocks. Uh, got uh, six D-rings up for the hammocks. Could could have three hammocks strung in there. I know you'd be banging against each other every time we go around a curve, but man, I can't wait to be in the back of that in a hammock when someone else is driving on a curvy road <clears throat> and I'm just sort of slaloming in the hammock. Oh yeah, that's that's what it's all about right there. Anyway, special shout out to all of you who have helped with the van, sending me money, sending me advice, links to interesting websites with advice. I'm trying to keep it pretty simple right now because we just want to get it done. Probably get on the road early June and uh, yeah, just cruise around this country and, and meet some of you and talk to a bunch of people and bring you podcasts from the road. I'm looking at getting a like a dash cam that I can use so when I'm driving and something interesting comes to mind i can just turn it on and talk and uh, throw up some videos so we'll see how that works out but um it's going pretty well so far what else can i tell you well oh the bike yeah let's talk about the bike because I, I we mentioned it in the conversation so ryan when we were talking he was going to be coming to la and i said i'd love to do a podcast with him and we, we sort of you know talked back and forth for a while and he was like, oh, you're in Topanga. Dude, that's amazing mountain bike country. You should get a mountain bike. And I said, yeah, I've been thinking about it. But, you know, I'm like, I'm not in great shape and I don't have a lot of time to devote to it. And I want to get out. I want to ride. But, yeah, it's kind of like and they're expensive and like it's real steep here. It's canyon country. So it's not like, you know, rolling hills. It's like straight up, straight down kind of stuff. So uh, he and some other people said, well, why don't you look into these electric assist mountain bikes? Because they, you know, they can help you when you're going up the hill. They give you a little assist. And then, uh, you know, when you're going flat, you turn it off and you just cruise along. And when you're going down, you don't need it. And so it's sort of great. And I looked into them, but they're expensive. My God, they're expensive. So I sort of, you know, was like, yeah, that would be ideal, but that's not really going to happen. Anyway, so I was talking to Ryan about it and he said, well, let me, I know some people at uh, Specialized, which is a company that makes really top of the line mountain bikes and, uh, and other bikes, road bikes as well, I believe. Anyway, he's been working with them for a long time, used to work with them directly and he works with them you know, in his capacity as a journalist. And um, so he talked to some people there and told them about the podcast and, you know, gave them some audience numbers and this and that. And they said, yeah, we'll give Chris a bike. Why not? So they gave me a bike. So shout out to Specialized. Um, they didn't ask me for anything. Uh, you know, I was honest with them. I said, if I get it, I'll talk about it. Like I talk about everything else, you know, talk about <laughs> fucking toilet brushes. Well, might as well talk about my mountain bike. Um, and I've been riding it around. It's fucking fantastic. It's uh, if you follow me on Instagram, you'll see some pictures I've posted of it. It's, uh, the specialized, uh, turbo Levo. Uh, is the one they gave me and you know it's so cool I know you hardcore mountain bikers out there are you know shaking your heads dismissively and I get it I get it yeah I'm not you know I'm not going to be like blowing by people on a single track 
Uh, I'm, I, I don't want to get in anyone's way. I don't want to fuck anything up. You know, I just want to ride on fire roads and, you know, cruise around in the desert or whatever. But um, the thing about it is, like from my house, I go down a really steep driveway and then I turn and I go up a long 2,000 foot rise before I get to any sort of fire roads or anything, you know, comfortable to ride. Realistically, I'm just not going to do that on a normal bike. But on this thing, I can just press a button and when I get to the hill, it you still have to work. You still have to pedal, but the harder you pedal, the more assistance it gives you. So I still end up sweating. I still end up getting a good workout, but I end up just cruising up this mountainside. It's fantastic. And then I get to the top and I set it on low or turn it off and I just cruise along like a normal bike. It's, it, you know, and I was riding it the other day and I was thinking, this is a metaphor for, for everything. This is like a metaphor for a, the best teacher or parent or even friend. It's like, you need help? I'll help you. And I'll help you in proportion to how much effort you put into helping yourself. You see, that's the difference between a, you know, a motorcycle and this kind of a bike. Motorcycle, you get on it, you can be fat as fuck, you can be lazy, you just twist the throttle and away you go. This thing, you got to work. And I think that's the way we should offer help to people. That's the way we should expect other people to help us. You shouldn't say, I need help, do it for me. And too many people approach it that way. Too many people are, you know, as, as, as any sort of anyone who works in psychotherapy will tell you, a lot of people will come to you and say, I need help. You know, I have this problem, that problem, whatever. And then they sit back and wait for you to solve it. It'll never happen. It'll never happen. Don't even take their money. You know, you always do that first, or at least I always did do that first uh, session for free. When you when you pick up that energy from someone, don't bother. It's it's exploitative. You're taking their money and it's never going to help. What you need is someone who's willing to put a lot of work into it. They, they're desperate. They're done. They're done being where they are. And they're willing to do the work. They just need some help. They need a little a little assistance getting up that hill. That's perfect. I mean, think about it. Parenting, teaching, international aid. You know, if you if we're just going to give you money and your fucking president's going to steal it and send it to the Seychelles, fuck that. But if you've got institutions set up, you've got a structure, you've got oversight, you've got a plan for how you're going to use this money. You're, you've got a way you're going to take this money and, and, and invest it in something that's going to generate more money and clean water and help people and all. Well, that's where you want to give your money, right? Yeah. Don't help anyone who isn't helping anyone else. And that includes themselves. And a lot of people aren't helping themselves. They're comfortable in their uh, postures of victimhood. And that's a waste of energy. It's harsh. It's hard hearted. I know. But the fact is, you've got limited amount of energy that you can give to people. So you want to give it to people who are then going to reflect it out into the world. You don't want to water dead plants. Right? Uh, okay. On that cheery note, let's play a little something from George Carlin, one of the great geniuses of our age. Um, 
And this is in response to the fact that we just sent some missiles. We just blew up a bunch of shit in Syria. And now everybody on TV is all excited about it. So let's listen to George Carlin talking about war for a few minutes. We like war. We're a warlike people. We like war because we're good at it. You know why we're good at it? Because we get a lot of practice. This country's only 200 years old and already we've had 10 major wars. We average a major war every 20 years in this country, so we're good at it. And it's a good thing we are. We're not very good at anything else anymore. Huh? Can't build a decent car. Can't make a TV set or a VCR worth the fuck. Got no steel industry left. Can't educate our young people. Can't get health care to our old people. But we can bomb the shit out of your country, all right? Especially if your country is full of brown people. Oh, we like that, don't we? That's our hobby. That's our new job in the world, bombing brown people. Iraq, Panama, Grenada, Libya, you got some brown people in your country, tell them to watch the fuck out, or we'll goddamn bomb them. Well, when's the last white people you can remember that we bombed? Can you remember the last white, can you remember any white people? we've ever bombed the germans those are the only ones and that's only because they were trying to cut in on our action they wanted to dominate the world bullshit that's our fucking job job. now we only bomb brown people not because they're trying to cut in on our action just because they're brown Now, you probably noticed I don't feel about that war the way we were told we were supposed to feel about that war, the way we were ordered and instructed by the United States government to feel about that war. You see, I tell you, my mind doesn't work that way. I got this real moron thing I do. It's called thinking. And I'm not a very good American because I like to form my own opinions. I don't just roll over when I'm told to. Sad to say, most Americans just roll over on command, not me. I have certain rules I live by. My first rule, I don't believe anything the government tells me. Nothing. Zero. Nope. And I don't take very seriously the media or the press in this country, who in the case of the Persian Gulf War were nothing more than unpaid employees of the Department of Defense, and who most of the time, most of the time, function as kind of an unofficial public relations agency for the United States government. So I don't listen to them, I don't really believe in my country, and I gotta tell you folks, I don't get all choked up about yellow ribbons and American flags. I consider them, I consider them to be symbols, and I leave symbols to the symbol-minded. Yeah, well, on that subject of symbols and the symbol-minded, I'm confused as to exactly why the U.S. is bombing Syria now and haven't been for the last five years while hundreds of thousands of people have died, been blown to pieces, millions of refugees flooding into Europe. It appears that the answer to that question is because of the chemical weapons that were used gassed uh, a bunch of people, I don't remember, 100 or a few, I don't remember, um, 
less than fewer than a hundred people, uh, including some children and images went around the world of these children in agony, suffering, suffocating from the sarin gas. Now, no question that's horrible. And yes, there are international norms, uh, agreements against the use of uh, unconventional weapons, which include chemical weapons. But I'm really confused by this. You know, why is it that you can blow up as many kids as you want and nobody gives a shit, but when you gas them, suddenly it's an international crisis? I don't really get that. We have these weird attitudes toward death. I mean, dead is dead. And yeah, there's, okay, there are different levels of suffering involved in death. And, you know, maybe if your argument is it's better to be blown up in an instant than it is to be, you know, to die in 20 minutes of gradual suffocation. Well, I agree with that. Um, But does that really rise to the level of, in one case, we ignore it. And in another case, we start bombing your airports. Uh, You know, you see the same kind of weird... uh, disconfigured thinking in American executions, you know, like, oh, you have this, it's got to be humane, (laughs) humane, humane. You've got a guy in a cage for 20 years, knowing he's going to die, counting down to the date. You got all these weird sort of, you know, court appeals and things. It's, It's like watching the end of a basketball game. The last minute takes five, five years. You, uh, finally bring him down you you give him his last meal you know you go through this whole ritual you um you know take him drag him down to the death chamber you got all these witnesses there behind glass you strap them in you're sticking in catheters and last words and all that's humane i don't know firing squad seems much more humane to me or a, a fucking guillotine boom done What's humane really seems not to have much to do with the actual event. It has to do with the optics. So the fact that we saw a bunch of kids suffering makes this a big deal. But when the Saudis drop bombs in Yemen and there are no no videos um, because the people there are so poor, they don't even have cell phones. Uh and those kids get blown into a bunch of pieces that don't really make for good video anyway. Uh, we get the the shot of the teddy bear in the rubble. You know, that's about as close as we get. It's just strange how the optics determines the response and not the actual event and the geopolitical significance of the event itself. I don't know. I, it It seems very arbitrary to me to say that you know, blowing people up is one thing and gassing them is, uh, is a completely different type of, uh, provocation. Anyway, enough about war for now. We'll see what happens. Hopefully it won't lead to bigger, bigger things, but, uh, I'm going to play you out with a song called bomb the world by Michael Franti and spearhead. I uh, hope you enjoy this. They're great. Uh, I might, I'm trying to plan out this van trip and they're going to be playing there on tour this summer. So I'm hoping I'll, I'll get to catch them and maybe uh, sit down for a conversation with uh, Michael Franti. I think that would be really interesting. He's a very interesting cat. If anybody out there knows him personally, 
put in a good word for me. I'd love to meet the guy and uh, I would definitely not waste his time. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Thanks for all your help. Thanks for supporting the podcast through patreon.com. Your t-shirt orders, mom gets them out right away. As those of you who have ordered have seen, she's, she's the most efficient prompt person ever. And, uh, and what else for uh, using the Amazon affiliate link? at chrisryanphd.com or tangentiallyspeaking.com. That gets us 7 8% of whatever it is you, you spend at Amazon. Comes to the podcast uh, at no expense to you. Comes out of Amazon's cut. So that works out for everybody. Anyway, thanks for all your uh, support, your emails, and your love. Sending it back to you, and I will catch you later.
I'm sitting outside my Topanga hovel with Ryan Kleek, is it? Yes. Kleek, uh, who is, uh, how would I describe you, Ryan? You are a, uh, what, a world-renowned uh, <laughs> well, mountain bike racer or something? Well, more of like a... Journalist? Yeah, mountain bike journalist for many, many years, starting in 2000. But, um, you know, I guess I'm a writer, photographer, filmmaker, mountain biker. Right. So, I guess... Uh, before I get all distracted and forget, what's the name of the movie? Oh yeah, um, I had a feature-length documentary um, came out just over a year ago at the end of uh, 2015. It's called Reach for the Sky. Um, it kind of really examines the risk versus reward in the action sports world. Right. And it follows a guy named Cameron Zink, who uh, for a year of his life, and it bookends with uh, this crazy event called the Red Bull Rampage, where these guys are doing flips off cliffs, and it's a judged event where they build their own dangers to tracked on this really um jagged hillside in virgin utah yeah and um and in between the town is called virgin yeah, it's yeah. A, <laughs> so it's not a virgin region of utah it's actually virgin fucking utah yeah that's exactly. great and mormons a couple, couple hours outside of vegas yeah. and um but anyway so it's the, red rock country yes, right yeah man I, there was there's the the trailer is insane oh. i mean i gotta tell everybody yeah. please yeah. We, we google it's it called or reach what, for the sky just it, google it and you'll yeah, see the trailer it, you know it's pretty it's a rather common name but the name means something in the, in the film but um i have a google alert for reach for the sky so i get all types of shit that's not related to mine right. but if you search reach for the sky trailer or reach for the sky zinc Z-I-N-K trailer, that's his name, the guy it's about. Yeah, That'll Zach. Uh, Cameron Zink. Oh, Cam, Cam yeah. Zink. Yeah. Cool and, name, Cam yeah. Zink. And so the yeah. movie, like it's bookended with this, uh, that crazy event that's on NBC called the Red Bull Rampage. Yeah. And, um, and in between, so it's a year apart, and then in between that, that year, it has his life story, his pursuits, and he also attempts to break the world record um, live on ESPN. For the jumping a canyon? Uh, it was the... Uh, the longest like backflip in the world, like unassisted, like he just rolled in down the hill and it was 115 feet or something like did that. Did he land it? Oh, well, you have to see. <laughs> yeah, he did. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, don't don't say how it ends. <laughs> yeah, no, it, like that was on. You know, he's been on like the Sports Center, um, you know, top 10 plays all the time. Yeah. And, um, but the idea behind it was, you know, he has all these accomplishments, but I've known him since he was a teenager, and he just I think he's 31 now, 32 maybe. He, uh, you know. He had to go through a lot to persevere through to get there. That's the idea. Well, you know, I mentioned you before we turn on the mics after I watched that trailer again. I'd watched it, whatever, a year ago when mm -hmm. you first sent it to me and, and was really impressed by it. But I watched it again yesterday to sort of prepare to meet with you. And after watching it, I immediately went to Wikipedia and looked up Cam Zink mm -hmm. to see, you know, what he had died of. Yeah. <laughs> and was very pleased to see that he's still alive. Yeah. Because that shit is insane. I mean, yeah. there, there's on the, I think it's either a still that's on the, the interview page that you sent me, mm -hmm. or maybe it's in the, in the trailer, but there's an image of him ejecting. Right. And he's got to be like, a hundred feet in the air or yeah, something. Yeah, so that clip you're referring to, it's in the movie, and that's, if you're in the bike world like I am, that's you're probably familiar with seeing that by now. Um, however, that clip was on Tosh.0, that clip was on Jimmy Kimmel, so like it's really right. it transcended traditional bike media or action sports media. Yeah. And um, he tried to attempt to, I mean, 
that was a crazy, crazy crash, and he even tried to compete the next day. And all he did was hurt his heels, yeah, it he, said. Yeah, he like bruised. He him. landed on his heels? Yeah, he landed on his feet, but um, he just looked like, I mean, he had, he's had just as many knee reconstructions as I've had, so everyone thought, you know, there goes his knees again, or, right. or perhaps worse. Yeah, know? well, Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, it's, well, it, and so reach for the sky, yeah. when I watched that, I thought, that might be it's not only a reference to doing these incredible jumps and mm -hmm. you know air 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 what was aerobatics like style tricks type right stuff, yeah. but it's also like is there a death wish going on here you know i think you know i've been doing that a long time i don't flip backflip off cliffs like he does but when you're when you're rice racing or riding challenging terrain or even extrapolate that out to doing death-defying tricks like cam does it's all about calculated risk like it's he knows he can do it like he's the most confident person that you've, you've ever met you know like i was a nervous wreck for that the two years where we filmed that movie yeah. because here's my friend i don't know if he's gonna be okay i don't know if i'm gonna my investment into making this i don't know if i'm gonna get my money back if he's if something happens to him i mean many layers of concern yeah and um but you know he's i think that he uh it's not a death wish as much as kind of just proving to people that he, he can do it. I think there's an underlying confidence and some motivation there. Okay, I'm, I'm having trouble understanding how those things fit together. Yeah. What's the difference between someone who's, who's got no fear, this guy mm -hmm. in, in the trailer, somebody says, you know, um, Cam has no fear. He's, mm -hmm. he's absolutely uh, unafraid of doing these things. But fear is a self-preservation mechanism that's evolved into us, you know, and obviously too much fear becomes an anxiety disorder mm -hmm. and then you die from, you know, being uptight all the time. But too little fear and you fucking walk into traffic and right. you pick a fight with a dude twice your size and, you know, you just, you don't last long enough to reproduce. So yeah. you could look at this, you know, these guys who have no fear or who are so, uh, I mean, is it, a, is it a case of having no fear or is it a case of being uh, so hungry for that thrill uh, that you get when you accomplish something? Or is it, you know, you mentioned something earlier about proving to people that you can do it. Mm -hmm. Is it a sense of, you know, inadequacy? Like I gotta go out and show everybody how great I am? You know, it's, it's, there's that. I don't think that, um, I think he is, there is fear, definitely. And I think that he admits that, you know, there's, you're, naturally there's a sense of fear, but I think through all of his experience and practice and the things he's accomplished, I think that can kind of, the fear can keep him in check, but right. however, um, keep it, you know, he won't over-rationalize the opportunity because of that. But um, there is some underlying motivation and that's covered in the, in the movie where it's about some kind of proving to his, um, his father that he was as good as his older brother. Uh, so there's an underlying sibling okay. rivalry right, that comes right. there. And then he had a bunch of uh, injuries as a young racer to work through. And, you know, if, if anyone's been a fan of the sport for five years, they think all this guy does is, you know, lay gold bricks. Right. But to, that's the idea of the, 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 the project was to kind of show what he had to get through to get to that point where he is on ESPN all the time, right. that type of stuff. Um, yeah, I, I get it. Like it's, it looks crazy and death defying. It is, but and I'm and there is fear. But I think that uh, those who are truly fearless aren't long around long enough to probably uh, have a movie made about them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a good. That's a good point. I mean, I mean, you know, you talk about like knee reconstructions mm -hmm. and. 
I just, I, I can't, maybe, maybe it's an age thing. I don't know. But I, I look at it, I look at a young guy like that and I think, man, this guy's in his, what, in his 20s? He's early 30s now. Yeah. And he's had, you know, so many knee reconstructions. He's, you know, had injuries that were definitely uh, life-threatening. And, like, is that cool? You know, because you're, you're making this movie about it. And mm-hmm. partly you're celebrating it. And you're in that world yourself, right? Yes. So you you know what is fueling him in some sense, the the thrill of it and the sense of accomplishment and all that. But then there's another part of me that looks at it and says, holy fuck, man, is this like, um, I don't know, it's almost a documentary about a, a kind of of sickness or, yeah. or mania. Well, I mean, the injuries that are common in that, they're similar in hockey or football or box, you know, maybe not boxing, yeah. but, you know, like yeah. obviously head injuries and all this stuff. Right. There's a concussion under, there's a concussion um People want to join the military, be a SEAL, you know, they do all this crazy shit. I mean, I don't, I don't, I certainly, the goal wasn't to um, make light of that or glamorize it. It's rather the opposite, to show that it is real. And when you see these guys in the pages of magazines and you see them on television, you know, it's not just smile and say, I want to thank my sponsors. It's, you know, there's shit you have to go through to get to that point. Right. right? And and I I think it was important that, uh, and there's that, um, it was in there because it would like you know there's a lot of kids that look up to him now and right. and they want it's kind of not to shatter their dreams but there's, there's a real side of it too you know yeah. so that was kind of the goal yeah I was last night I was uh, you know I'm, I'm outfitting this van mm-hmm. that I just bought and somebody sent me a link uh, to this guy who has a van that's really cool and whatever and so I went and I uh, was looking at the van then it turns out the guy is really interesting he's a uh, uh, free solo rock climber. Oh yeah, I forget his name, but he's quite well known. Oh. You know, yeah, what I'm talking yeah, about the Alex Hummel guy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, and he's got a great van. Wow. So I, I bet. So, <laughs> so I was checking out his van, and then it's like, oh, who is this guy? And holy fuck, look at this guy's going up El Capitan without ropes yeah. and shit. And and so it reminded me as the same kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. It's like a young dude. It's always a young dude mm-hmm. who's like, yeah, man, I just and and he he's like described the. You know, the process of going and looking at this rock face and going, oh, man, that's impossible. And then like, well, I don't know if you went up, if you went that way and then across that crack and then over, like, "Mm, maybe it's doable. And then he said, and then there's the moment where you go, oh, no, now I have to do it. Yeah. (laughs) You know, and I was wondering, like, Cam probably has that same process where it's like, no, that's impossible. Like, well, you know, no more. Yes, that's true. And that's never been more exhibited than when he tries to break that world record of that backflip. It was held at Mammoth Mountain. It was held, um, you know, Northern California, and it was uh, live on ESPN. So it's uh. one thing, and he'd only jumped it a few times, and that's just like in a, going a straight air, not doing any tricks, just just getting his just feet. get to the and other he was side. Going 50 miles an hour when he hit this jump. You know, so he's going down a big ramp and then up a lip, down the dirt slope of the of the ski resort, right, uh-huh. and then the ski run, and then they built two giant jumps we're going to take off of and land on and um you know balls of steel it's like at 7 p.m on a friday night they say go do it now you're on live tv it's one thing to fuck up two or three times and then the the time that makes it the show you know the next day yeah it's he had one chance to do it but how do you survive a fuck up on that that's the thing he uh that's what was extremely nerve-wracking because if you fall out of the sky at 50 miles an hour and you're on a you know, he was wearing minimal equipment. That's similar. a motorcycle accident yeah. hitting a tree. You, you I a mean, problem, that's serious. You know? yeah. yeah, and um, that's like he made it look so easy. He was so overprepared. Not overprepared. He was so well prepared that 
I edited it the way I did in the movie because he made it look so easy on, on the ESPN broadcast. Yeah. And being there behind the scenes with his wife and newborn baby and friends oh, and all man. this stuff, like oh my God. The, the weight of that moment yeah. is, is I really tried to capture that in a in a in that in that segment. It's a fu- it's a funny thing. You, you ever seen a film? Uh, I forget what it's called, but it's about these guys who climb Mount Everest. Recently, a bunch of guys died up there, and the one guy called his wife oh. as he was freezing to death with the phone. Not a. It was um. It wasn't into thin air, oh, but it was the a crack hour. Yeah, Krakow wrote about yeah. it, and it was, and there was a movie called Into Thin Air as well. But this was another film that just came out a couple years ago, like some B-list Hollywood actors, and hmm. um, I forget what it's called. But anyway, I was watching it, and um, and it's just interesting how our society sort of uh, celebrates this kind of death-defying stuff, right? Um, and yet. I, I mean, I'm, I, I get, I'm, I feel like I'm ruining the party, but I get skeptical <laughs> about it, you know? No, I understand. Like you just mentioned, he, you know, he has a newborn kid. Mm-hmm. He has a young wife. Yeah. You know, when I watched that movie, I was thinking there was this, there's this character who um, climbed with his best friend for years. And then uh, his best friend died. Mm. His, his famous mountaineer, I can't remember, Reinhold. someone I think maybe anyway he died on a climb so then this guy fell in love with his best friend's wife married her not Meru talking about the movie Meru maybe it was yeah was it Meru is that a similar concept that's but that's a real story I believe yeah it is a real story but a similar underlying storyline yeah no but Meru's with Jimmy Chin Chin, yeah Yeah, yeah. really interesting guy I follow him on Instagram Mm -hmm. great photographer um, it, no, but this was on Everest. And, and so he married the guys. I, I, I think he's the guy who climbs with Jimmy okay. in, that, in Meru. Yeah, okay. But anyway, he was on Everest. Mm-hmm. And he went out. He led a group up. And he had married his best friend's widow, was raising their children, these two sons, I think, young guys. And he felt like he had a responsibility. Also, he loved the woman, I'm sure, whatever. But my point is, he kept climbing. After his best friend had died and he had like rescued his buddy's wife and kids, like, don't, isn't there a point where you say enough of this shit? I mean, like, where's the responsibility to the woman and the kids come in? You know what I mean? Hmm. Is there a deep selfishness in this kind of thing? Is there a a similar, a similar parallel to that? I mean, it's been a few years since I read Sex Zone, but you you, you refer to the the, the fighter pilots and how they have a similar relationship with their their friends and their wives. Right. Yeah. Now, I don't know if these guys were sleeping with each other's wives before he died. (laughs) (laughs) Right. That would, that'd be nice. Yeah. But I I wonder, that's actually a really good point. I wonder if in people who do high risk sports, Mm -hmm. if there is more sort of sexual sharing going on because they're facing death hmm i can tell you that in hospitals where doctors are dealing with a lot of death in my experience working in hospitals in spain doctors who deal with a lot of death are much more sexual really like there's a lot of fucking going on that would explain some nurses that matter exactly (laughs) i think that's one of the things about doctors and nurses that's so sexy it's like you know they're they're dealing with reality they 
they're not going to waste a lot of time yeah. on bullshit, you know? <laughs> yeah. So let's hear about the nurses. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Fuck this biking shit. I don't want to get any... any... <laughs> no, it's been interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No. So you've you've spent some time in hospitals, I guess. Yeah, with yeah, I've gone... Uh, yeah, I had a... I started off, you know, I raced bikes myself when I was five till I was about 15 in BMX and got out of that. And that was a relatively new sport, right? And yeah, that didn't exist when I was Yeah, a kid. I just turned 40. And um, so I started a race from, like, I guess, 82 to 92. Mm. And it's, you know, it, it technically existed in the, like, middle to late 70s, but in the 80s mm. was its height. You know, and now it's in the Olympics, right? Right. And um, so that was it. That was, like, my first kind of love. But then I... Then I... Then I got into, like, the stick and, spall, stick and ball sports, and then that's when the injury started coming. You would think that you, that would come uh, when you're jumping over. Were you sport. playing baseball? Or I what? played football and, and hockey and uh, stuff like that, uh, and um, had a lot of success. And uh, just kind of racing, you have to be, it's a selfish, time-consuming endeavor. When you're a kid, now you're in high school, you want to go on dates or whatever. You uh, know, you don't want to travel like that. And, right. Um, so then totally destroyed my body playing those other sports, and ironically I had to get back into bikes for my rehab. You know, I've had oh, four right. ACL reconstructions, two MCL, PCL, meniscus, and all that stuff. Because of hockey or football? Football, primarily, what, yeah. I went what football. did you play? I played uh, quarterback and defensive back, yeah. And oh. I'm only 5'9", 160, but I had a... Right. A, a, no one ever told me that, <laughs> you know? And... Um, Was this high school or college? Yeah, high school. I played... And then I went... So, yeah, I tore my ACL when I was 16. I tore my other one when I was 18. I still was able to go play college football. And then I also played hockey, too. But I just was so... When you're my size and you lose your wheels, you can still be on the team, but you'll be the equipment manager. You know, right. you're not gonna be a player. But right. um, so I just was too too depressed at trying to play at 80% of my original ability, and I ended up um, just quitting football. And I still could play hockey just because uh, I could the skating motion wasn't different. But I was never as good at that as I was in in football or, B, or BMX. And then, um, ironically, through all the knee injuries, I had to get back into bike riding for my rehab. Right. And then one day I saw. Some guys I looked up to or even raced against, they're on ESPN racing mountain bikes. And I was like probably 17. I'm like, oh, I can, I may not be doing that on ESPN, but I can probably do that. You know what I mean? It's just some ability. And I, that's how I kind of got into mountain biking. Hmm. So, and then it's got a degree in journalism. And where'd it, you grow up? I was grew up all over the Midwest. Uh-huh. And um, my dad, maybe he, his, uh, business transferred him all the time between Indianapolis and Chicago and South Bend and it seemed like every year I was living in a different town like every year and a half I was changing schools yeah because my dad's job was always changing and being being you know sports always came easy to me and when you're a kid and I, I used to stutter when I was little so it's like that was a chance to give me a, mm. a, a social group you right. know like it was a really right. easy way to make friends when you're right. like that and um I grew up the same way, by yeah, the way. Yeah. Moved. I went to three different high schools. Yeah, and yeah. It, it, it was my. Uh, thankfully, you know, my mom was really. My mom's like five foot tall, like a g- gymnast and a diving champion. My dad's six oh, yeah. foot tall, so I'm like the five nine product. And I think I, I acquired epigenetically, I guess, I acquired her coordination and perhaps some of his farm boy, I don't know, whatever toughness <laughs> to, to, mass. to to, to uh, <laughs> put up with all this shit, you know, really? over the years. And so I think that's the combination that kind of helped me. I just picked up anything. I was always monkey see, monkey do. If someone's mm. snowboarding or whatever, I just instantly was able to do it. And um, that was beneficial as a kid. But then when all that gets taken from you, it's like, it's like it's, uh, 
it's you know you have to do some soul searching to figure out kind of reinvent yourself yeah you know? right that's, that's actually that's your identity right because it wasn't really my identity thinking like well i'm going to be the next joe montana or right Wayne gretzky it was the the confidence of always knowing that you could probably do something pretty well you right. know what i mean it's just in that kind right. of whoever it was right and um and that's gone. Are you a good dancer mm, i don't know i don't dance that way <laughs> i usually don't remember the times i'm dancing <laughs> <laughs> a good drunk dancer. Yeah. 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 No, um, so is your mom actually a professional athlete? No, but she was, um, she, you know, was on the uh, swimming and diving and gymnastics teams growing up and through college and oh, stuff. Right. And uh, yeah, so then um, just kind of, I actually got into writing. You know, I've, I've got a lot of different, you know, business and, you know, endeavors right now. But, you know, if you, I guess it was Woody Allen. He said if you shook him in the middle of the night and asked him what he does for a living, he'd say a writer. And mm. I'd probably say the same thing because everything starts that way, and I do that the most. I'd say a dreamer. <laughs> yeah, it's like you're in the middle. You ruined my dream. I'm a dreamer. Fuck <laughs> off. <laughs> but um, so I, got, I actually got into writing by like writing down my thoughts and all the things I was going through when During I was a teenager. During this crisis. Yeah, and my oh, mom. And my mom came across one of those letters. I was like 16 mm. and she's like she's crying like reading it and she's like there's you're really good at this and I was like well and then and then I went to college at Butler University in Indianapolis and they're the west of the Mississippi no one really knows them but they're good in basketball so yeah, I, yeah, I've, yeah I was thinking you know yeah. March Madness yeah Butler, right. Right. it's a small school like 5,000 people but um Kurt Vonnegut was there for a while and stuff mm. like that and, and David Leverton grew up not too far from that, that, right. that area right. but um so I actually started off in, uh, I wanted to go into the, be a physician's assistant. My knee surgeon suggested that's the medical route if you wanted to go. He's like, don't go my way, do this. And at the time, there was only a couple of schools that offered that. And that conveniently was only an hour from where I lived. And you said it was Indiana? Indianapolis, yeah. Indi- yeah. yeah. And um, <laughs> at the time, the PA program, you had to start off in the school of chemistry. Well, I'm an 18-year-old kid. I just I was not, had no direction as far as my career path. I thought I wanted something, but you don't know. And I, those chemistry classes, you know, did their job of weeding out people like me. Right. And I had, which is fine, but um, I had more fun entertaining the professors with, with the papers than I did learning the actual stuff. Right. So I switched over to journalism and um, had a few professors there that really kind of really clicked with and they were encouraging. And then the right place at the right time, I was working for, I had an internship my senior year, I was 22, I guess, and uh, internship at a book publishing company. In, in Indianapolis and uh, one day I didn't go to lunch with everybody else I just stayed in and, and wrote you know I was sending out 100 resumes a day but I wrote to the contact at Mountain Bike Action Magazine who the hell knows when that this is in 2000 yeah. I guess or, yeah and yeah it's like the, an intern's gonna get the email yeah right? and what coincidentally I just and it was a you know from the hip message saying here's, here's who I am here's my education my backgrounds and you know I got a background in extensive background in bike riding and racing right. you know I'm like if you have an opportunity that's available here's my resume you know right. that night on my phone it said california calls like what is this and turns out the uh the publisher's son was doing the websites and got that email and forwarded to his dad no shit yeah nice so then he's like well you're living in indianapolis and we're in la and uh he goes well so that's a problem he goes but so he gave me a couple assignments i did them and they said, all right, well, you have two weeks to be here if you want the job. And so I'm, you'd be on staff. Yeah, staff as an as a editor. So yeah. you did it. He gave you a couple of, like, sort of uh, freelance exactly, kind yeah. of things yeah. just they, to see how it works out. Right, and they also wanted me to do, like, design stuff. It's a, it was a 
worldwide, big international public publishing company, but it's privately owned, so it's kind of family run. So right. they wanted me to do like design work and layout stuff, but also write and stuff like that. And um, great so, opportunity. Yeah, exactly. So I was like, well, you know, some of my friends were like, how lucky? I'm like, well, yeah, I guess. But I sent out ten thousand resumes till that contact is the one that came through you know and um so i knew that opportunity wasn't going to knock twice so i said adios mom and dad and girlfriend and was in girlfriend yeah and it was in la and well, that's rough I, so when i got to la i was like this is where i'm supposed to be I never i was never homesick a day all of my huh. interests are encouraged and were or, or if not born right. there you know right. i was always a skateboarder and being a yeah. racer snowboarder all this stuff it's like um just like my, it was like I was going to the homeland, you know, yeah. of my interests, yeah. and uh, and it just kind of kept evolving from there. And, and that then, was when? How long? Ago? That was in two thousand. So I seventeen lived, years ago, you grew up out here. I did. I lived in oh. L.A. from twenty-two to thirty-five. So that's the right. formidable years, right? right. And right. Uh, so I really feel like, I mean, I'm here right now, you know, visiting, and I'm at the end of a two-week, you know, riding and racing trip through uh, L.A., San Diego, Vegas, and now I'm on my way back to the Bay Area where I currently live. And, um, but it's like, the traffic doesn't bother me. It's like, it's just it's just the fee you pay to live somewhere you like, you yeah. know? And if you plan yeah. ahead and, but I certainly understand how people can be miserable here. Cause if, yeah, if you've got a nine to five job and you got a commute, yeah, if you got fuck. A, if you have a nine to five and you have a yeah. 30 mile commute, it's, you're, it's you're in, it's an hour and a half each way, each way. Yeah, it's, it's a big part of your day. Yeah. I mean, I, I hear from a lot of people um, who have, you know, integrated podcasts into the commute. You know, I think podcasting has made commuting a, a more productive time oh, yeah. for a lot of people. It still sucks, of course, but at least you can learn something. I was there. just thinking about this before, you know, when I was a kid, when all of us were kids, like if you were interested in a band or a profession or, or whatever, you know, you'd have to like, I was just hungry for information. I would read whatever, every magazine article, I'd pray a documentary would come out about a band I liked or right, whatever. Right. Now you can subscribe to those so subjects it's and overload. have them delivered to yeah, you. You know, it's, yeah. it's incredible. And audiobooks, you know, Absolutely, that didn't yeah. exist 30 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, commuting sucks, but there are ways to make it more productive. And also, as you say, if you're in LA, you plan. I mean, that's the thing. I'm still trying to sort of get used to it. It's like, okay, yeah, let's meet, you know, Thursday. Well, what time? Okay, mm -hmm. now I got to go on the 405 to the 10, you know. It's like, you have you ever seen the Saturday Night Live? Yeah. The, what do they call it, the Californians? Yeah, it's really funny. That's so funny, because it's so true. Like, how did you get here? Oh, well, I took the 10 to the 101. Yeah. I wonder where that adding the before the highway came. I, you, yeah, it's, I, I mean, it could be because... Really a lot of them were called like the Ronald Reagan Highway, or, they were, or the named after somebody. Uh, so perhaps that's what it was, or the root of it. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. It's it's a strange thing. It's a very LA because up in San Francisco, it's not the 101, right? It's just take 101. Correct. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so you've been here for what, a few months now. Well, this time, but yeah. I, I've been oh, here yeah. off and I mean, on for years. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then, so you, you've been with like. I've heard you talk about you know going to parties with uh, Moshe Kasher and Jake Johansson and yeah. so you're rubbing elbows with people like that and lots of comics. Yeah, yeah. Is, have you had any um, you know moments where you run into someone like unexpectedly that you're like, hey, how do I I know them or, or oh definitely yeah yeah, yeah I, actually I was at Jake's house uh, Christmas Day I think it was he does. Um, uh, Cajun food on Christmas. Oh, yeah. It's like a tradition. He makes oh, yeah. Cajun food, invites people over, and uh, yeah. And there was a guy there, and it's and it was yeah. It was definitely like 
yeah, hey, we've met before. And he's like, no, I don't think so. Yeah. I was like, yeah, but I know he's... And, you get, and he was just, like, used to it, you yeah. know. And uh, and then I started seeing the guy everywhere. He was in Mad Men. He was in um, The Man in the High Castle. Oh, yeah. He's, you know, and all... He was in... I saw a Coen Brothers film, um, the one where... Um, oh, Hail Caesar. Yeah, it yeah. was Hail yeah. Caesar. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Right. You're right. talking about. Yeah. Oh, you're yeah, yeah. talking about. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So I had him on the podcast. Uh, now, now I'm spacing on his name. Um, he was on the podcast a little while ago. Uh, character actor. And then I had a, th- I had a thing. I was sitting in. Um, I was, you know, one of these typical LA moments. I was at a, a talent agency, you know, mm-hmm. where I was represented for a while, and I was sitting in the waiting room. And this woman sat down next to me and said hi. And I was like, hey. And it seemed like she knew me. The way she said hi was yeah. so familiar. And it's like, hey, yeah. Well, now, how do we know each other? And, and she was just like, yeah, we don't. I had a, a similar yeah. <laughs> I had a similar moment. in the, you know, I, when I was really young, I lived like in Hollywood and Studio City. And then the last 10 or 11 years, 10 years in Santa Monica. Yeah. And... I mean, you see people all the time, like you said, but, but the one similar moment like that was I got a phone call. My, my prescription was ready, so I went to the CVS on Wilshire mm-hmm. or whatever. I must have been for poison oak or something. I'm like, I have like the medical history of a six-year-old boy. I'm, I get like either get stitches in my elbow for falling off my bike or uh-huh. I'm playing in the woods and need poison oak medicine. Yeah, so, yeah. so I go there and uh, I see this comedian, Paula Poundstone. Sitting oh, there. Yeah. She was pretty well known in the 90s, right. not as much right now. She's uh, on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Oh, she, That's her big gig now. Oh, really? Yeah, it's not, an NPR radio oh, thing. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah so... Um, she, I believe she, she played at Butler when I was at school there. Uh-huh. I, I, I went and saw her there, and I kind of, I follow a lot of different comedians over the years. And, you know, I'm not her probably, and she, this is probably 2005 or six, you know, right. so, you know, and she's not, at, not exactly at the height. I'm probably not exactly her target audience either, like a 26-year-old guy, you know what I mean? So <laughs> I, I reckon. She's a lesbian, isn't she? I think so. Yeah. And um, well, she dressed like. She had, like, she had that, she always wore that suit, you know, like a, a lesbian like, 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 a, like a pant suit type of, type of <laughs> the big, the yeah. big shoulders. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Store pads and, yeah. Yeah. and, um, and like, uh, you know, kind of like men's dress shoes type of, if, right. I, if I recall from yeah. seeing her on television. But, yeah. um, so I'm, I recognize her. It's just, so she's the same thing. So I get the phone call, my prescription's ready. I go to get it in the sign on the window at the pharmacy says, be back in one hour for lunch. And it's like 1248. So I'm like, oh, I got 10 minutes to kill probably. Yeah. So I sit down there right next to her, and she's doing the same thing as me, and we're just making small talk. I don't tell her that I recognize her or anything, you know, and we just chit-chat and have a nice talk. And then they call my name. I go get my prescription. I walk by, and I go, by the way, I enjoy your work, you know. I saw you do perform live at, you know, my college a couple years ago and stuff. And she goes, oh, thanks a lot. It's really nice. And then and I said, wait till my friend's here. I met Janine Garofalo. <laughs> And I just walked out. She started laughing. So, oh, good. Yeah, yeah, no, she knew I was kidding. But. <laughs> yeah, that is good. That's good when you can make a comedian yeah. laugh. That's a good day. I've got this photo. I, I saw a Rogan day. a couple years ago uh-huh. in San Jose. But he was up there for the, uh, I was living in Santa Cruz at the time. And I right. saw him perform in San Jose. And he's kind enough to let you take a photo with him after a show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And my has. girlfriend at the time, Christina, I took a photo. Fo- I made some joke. I don't forget what I even said. But Joe's, I took like a, I motor dragged it on my phone. And Joe's like just slapping his knee laughing really hard and I was like you know the highlight of my life yeah. Yeah, I don't know what I said you know what I mean but yeah. That's yeah. <laughs> yeah Joe's great yeah really yeah yeah LA is a funny place that way it's like you know you were talking about like uh, Poison Oak and, and your interest like how 
people would never believe that somebody with your interests would find LA to be a really accommodating place because mm -hmm. oh, yeah. the image people have of LA is it's all just concrete and bullshit. Right. But like where we're sitting right now, holy fuck, we could be in Utah or Colorado. Yeah, it's, that's it's the, amazing. That was a premise um, for a, one of the magazines I'm a contributor for now. It's called Bike Magazine. They're, mm -hmm. I think they're, they were based in San Clemente, but it's a, you know, a, a very, you know, big and uh, well-known magazine. And now that I think they're in the San, San Diego area. But they, they asked me to do um, a couple features on like mountain biking in LA. Like, oh, I think you sent me the I link did. to, yeah, 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 that was and, good. And um, after you mentioned you were getting a bike and you lived out here, I said, well, the whole idea was exactly what you just said. It's perceived to be a concrete jungle. You're staring at the bumper in front of you the whole time. Yeah. But people don't realize they've got, you know, this, it's surrounded by mountains, right? Yeah, yeah. And, um, and desert, beautiful exactly. desert. So that was yeah. the idea. And I kind of just had a, had fun with that and told that Tell the different riding areas in LA County through people I knew, because rather than just me talking about it, no one cares about that. But it's like I found interesting people, and um, that led to me ended up them hiring me and putting on retainer for uh, oh. for um, which is which is nice because I'm in between film projects right now. And, right. Yeah. So this this tour that you're sort of wrapping up right yeah. now, where you're racing and riding and all mm -hmm. that, is that just for your pleasure, or yeah. you, is it a project of some sort? It was purely kind of. For pleasure to be honest like it's just been raining sideways in the bay area uh, for thanksgiving yeah. and i was like i gotta get out of here and right. um had a lot of stayed with some friends in santa monica for a few days went down saw one of my old mentors and very good friend in san diego did some riding with him his name is richard, richard cunningham I'm really fortunate fortunate to be able to work with a guy like that when i was young kid because he really as a me journalist on. yeah he right. was he's in the you know hall of fame for as a, as a uh, bike designer as a journalist oh, he's a wow. very very um fascinating person he was really kind to me when I was a kid and my only two skills were I could I had a piece of paper on the wall that said I could write a sentence apparently and then I could hold on the handlebars you know what I mean so I tried to combine that for a career yeah. you know and yeah. he was kind enough to uh help guide me in many ways and that and um I leaned on him a lot in my early years and then hung out with him stayed in San Diego for a couple for a day and then uh went off to Vegas and rode out in this area oh. A little windy. Windy, windy. A road in this area called uh, Bootleg Canyon, which is by the Hoover Dam, and uh -huh. those red rocks out there. Yeah. And if anyone ever goes out there and they know what I'm talking about, it's about 20 miles from Vegas. There's a big a white B and C on the mountainside, and the trails are just world famous for being just jagged and lava rock. Hmm. Doesn't and, that fuck up your tires? Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, that you have to have, like, you use the thickest tire, like downhill tires, what they're called, downhill, made for downhill racing. And, um, oh yeah, you still tear them open. My race run, I, I didn't have, I did probably 12 practice runs perfect in over three days, flattered on my race run, the only one that counts. Really? And, and it's like ski racing. You watch yeah. ski racing in the Olympics, it's like someone crashes, you don't just get up and still get, could win, you're over. If you, if you get a flat tire, you crash. You know, it's tenths of a second can just separate many people. Right. So, so I was like, ah, damn, it's a long way to go to have that. Also, you don't want to crash on lava rock. No. That'll tear you to pieces. Yeah, no, I, oh, uh, I had a bad crash there in 2010. They had a, I won the uh, national, they had a national championship series race, and I won it, but I, the finish line was a jump, and it was really windy in the afternoon. And uh, I went across the finish line, and I got blown sideways after I crossed the finish line. I'm in the air, and I land, and I just, like, high side, I fly, and I hit a, I hit like a wooden fence they had as like a barrier. I didn't have a scratch on me, but I snapped my humerus in half. Second biggest bone in the body. What? I broke the ball on my shoulder off and I wasn't even dirty. Like I just kind of like rolled and- When was that? 2010. 
And uh, so you crashed after winning. Yeah. And I'm laying on the ground. I thought I dislocated my shoulder. And, oh, and I go, I think fuck. I had a good run though. Yeah. <laughs> my friend, so they take me to the hospital. My friend texts me, he's like, you won, you asshole. And I was like, well, that's nice. So then I had like to go. no pretty girls, no, no, no that's, you're lying in the hospital. No, but. Uh, Talk about a Pyrrhic victory. It's like even when you're, even when I win in Vegas, they break my arm on the way out. Yeah, <laughs> right? really. It's like, really. That was, that's just one example how, you know. There's, there is consequence to that stuff. But. So were you like a high-ranked racer um, in your you prime? Know, you know, I had a, a ton of success when I was a kid and at the, you know, at the highest level there. But then you got burned out. And then um, I mentioned those injuries from other sports. And that, my, my right knee, I only have like 60% range of motion. It's like you can only bend a paperclip so many times before it stops working like a paperclip. Yeah. My right knee is kind of the same way where I've had everything repaired to where it's structurally sound. But there's so much scar tissue and meniscus damage that the uh, range of motion never returned, and it's only about 60%. So, so I'm just saying that because in my early 20s when I was racing bikes, I just didn't take it as seriously because I felt like I was, I had four speeds and everyone else had five, you know. And then, and I just kind of, I was like, you know, self-destructive and not really. I was still good, you know, but I wasn't like I was like, what's the point of trying if it's just going to get rug taken off under me again anyway? So I was kind of mm. reluctant to mm. set myself up for that sort of, um, you know, disappointment. I guess. Right. And right. then, and you know, I had moments where things went well, and then you know, not so well. But um, then when I got to be about 30, I realized I just kind of had a per, per, uh, yeah, per, you know, perspective shift about it, and. It's like I probably had a skill set in my back pocket that a lot of people wish they had, and I just kind of just lowered my expectations a bit, didn't try to, and just kind of ride race for fun, and that's really changed my attitude, changed everything, and um, it's kind of how it is now. Like, I'm 40, so I've, there's like a vet pro category, so I like to do that. It's fun to see my, you know, racing against your friends and stuff like that. And right. I mean, it's not a career at, at all right now, or, yeah. but it still keeps me certainly still like it. I'm riding better at 40 than I was at 25, there's no doubt in my mind. Mm. So it's. Um, it's, it's good in that regard. So it, that transition you're talking about, you know, is uh, I think probably common to uh, like universal among people who, who reach high levels when they're young in mm -hmm. something that involves their body. Yeah. Whether it's athletics or, um, you know, I'm thinking of fashion models, mm -hmm. you know, you, like you gotta, you burn out or burn out or, or your career ends at a certain point around 30 or, you know, whatever it is. And then you have this crisis where it's like, well, shit, man, the thing I was identified with, right. the thing I was great at, I just can't do that anymore. Yeah. And you can get angry and bitter and self-destructive as a lot of people do. Exactly. Like I was fortunate to have that opportunity at that magazine. Right. And I was focused on... You transition pretty smoothly, it seems I was, like. Yeah, that was, I, I think subconsciously I wasn't mature enough I think to understand entirely but I think subconsciously I knew like this is a, something I can't fuck up but I was doing my damnedest on the side to kind of fuck it up like, I mean I mean by like mm. not not taking just not career mistakes but as far as like you know personal life things and, mm. and just not being being irresponsible as a 20 year old in LA with when you work for a magazine as long as you make the deadline sometimes you can you get free reign you know what I mean if you don't have a yeah. checks and balances on what you're doing then right. you know it's easy to go run around and do stuff like that and, yeah, and um, your family was back in, yeah exactly in and um but then I think that you know your identity like I mentioned before it's not like I thought I was gonna be the next Joe Montana or anything but it's like your identity comes with like oh I, I, I pick up things quickly I can I can I'll always be able to be 
you know, good at things, whatever it is, you know, it's just how my whole life had been. And then one day it's like, I can't run. I can't, I can't, you know, hike without my knee looking like a basketball. If I have a kid, you know, can I throw the ball with them? All these things are just kind of like overwhelming right. when you're a 20 year old kid, right? Yeah. Tough, tough, tough pull to swallow to realize you got to re-change your perspective on, on how you look at things. Did your attitude, did your relationship with your body change? Did you have like weight issues mm. or anything like that? Yeah, I gained, I gained, I gained weight when I had injuries, and I gained, you know, weight from, uh, you know, just from partying a lot, but um, not like, I no, I'm, I made 15, 15 pound, 20 right. pound shift, you know, I've always been active, but my, but my attitude towards it changed a lot once I got to be about 30, Right. and I was just like, you know what, there's no point in being so cynical about it all the time, you know, just kind of, right. just, and now I, now I still ride a lot, I feel, I feel like I ride at a high level, and, um, but now I've got so many other things going on, other irons in the fire, that it's, it's fun. It's a fun recreational outlet now, rather than a, a focus of um, disappointment. Right. You know? So what else is going on? You're a filmmaker? You, yeah. Have you, is, are you working on a second film, or so, have you done more? So the last one, I actually did my first one. So I started the magazine at 22. At 24, I did a feature-length documentary. My two, two of my very best friends, I stayed with one of them this past weekend. His name is Derek Hoffman. Uh, he's actually filming a pilot in Austin right now, but he's a producer on that popular show called Legion. It's out right now on mm. FX, I think. I don't have cable, so I don't watch it. But um, so he's, you know, a very successful uh, producer. But we were young kids. We were 24, 25. And my uh, friend Brian Reed, who I lived with for many years in uh, in Santa Monica, he's also, you know, was a producer on many other, you know, well-known projects. Um, we, I had this idea. I was like, I'm, in, I'm engrossed in this mountain bike world. There's stories out there that I think are could be told, whereas like when every other film that comes out is like it's like jackass on wheels, you know what I mean? Like right. doing like just you know, not that they're not entertaining, but it's like there's more to the world, you know. There's these there's real lives out there that are doing this, and I take it seriously. If I may not take myself too seriously, but I take that part of it seriously. Yeah. And um, so we the idea was to grab these three different people. They were all in the sport. One was like the Michael Jordan, you know, who's like. 34, 35, world champion, like the closest thing to a household name there was at the time in the sport. His name is Eric Carter, one of my great friends right now. And um, he's eight years older than me. He was on my childhood heroes in BMX. And now he became a world champion in mountain biking. So he was like the Michael Jordan figure, okay? Then we had this, and he was like in his mid thirties, early thirties at the time we were shooting this. And then the, uh, there was a 21 year old up and coming, like flamboyant, like ranked number five in the world, kind of like lip ring, nose ring, you know, right. like he was from Australia, like just the kind of like punk rock kid that was super nice and had all the talent in the world. So that, you know, that's a, you know, contrasting there. And then we had a journeyman, a guy who was 39 years old, lived in his van, still raced pro downhill all over the world. His name's Orlando Martinez. And the, my idea was those three people wouldn't even be in the same room together if it wasn't for this sport. Right. So we followed them for a year and just the drama that unfolded, if it was, if it was uh, written, you'd be like, whatever, come right. on. Yeah. But and so I'm, I'm proud that that, uh, um, at the time, that came out in 2004 or five, and you could only, there's only DVDs really, and I could only afford to make like 2,000. So that's who, that's who, I sold them all. So that's who saw it, right? right. And then, um, so I, put, I just I recently loaded it on YouTube. It's called Downhill Speed. So, ah, cool. so the whole movie's on YouTube for free. In Great. Its, in its standard definition glory. Right. But, um, that oh, was, wait a minute. And there was some lawsuit. And, oh, yeah. 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 Right. So, yeah. You mentioned that in the, yeah. in so, the article. Yeah. I was, yeah. So there was, uh, 
that's another thing. So I was about nine months into that, and that was a zero budget project. It was just credit cards and yeah. whatever camera equipment we could we could um, we could borrow. You know right. what I mean? And that's that to that to this day, it's part of its charm. I think if I if I had a million dollars to throw at it, it might have come out sooner and might have sounded a little better. But right. I wouldn't. I don't think I would have changed much else. But right. um, uh, yes, yeah, so it was very low budget. Really, really anchored around the story of it, of of those guys and what they go through and. I don't know if I finished what I was saying, but Orlando Martinez is the 39-year-old journeyman, full-time longshoreman in, in uh, Long Beach. Right. You know, lived out of his van to try and make ends meet. Right. And, you know, the guy who always, always, was always screwed out of his shot. You know what I mean? It wasn't his life decisions. It was, he was, someone was always keeping him down, you know? So he had all these, the juxtaposition of these three very different personalities. And um, so then nine months into that, we had basically, the most of it shot because we followed those guys at three big international events in North America. And um, nine months in, I'm just out riding in Santa Monica on my backyard trails in Sullivan Canyon there. And I run into this guy and he's like, he, I'm on some, you know, prototype bike or something. He starts asking me about it and it turns out we're the same age. He also races mountain bikes. And he's like, what are you doing? I, he asked me what I was working on. I said, I'm working on this, you know, documentary film. And he goes, oh, I heard about that on some message board. And, mm. he, and he said, I'm, a, I'm an editor, film editor. I go, oh, perfect. I was like, you're into the sport. You're an editor. We're the same age. It's like, why don't we collaborate, you know? Because, I mean, I was already, it was shot, you know. Yeah. It was basically like just putting the pieces together, right. you know, organizing the, uh, the recipe was done. So we had the ingredients. Now we're just putting them together, you know. Right. And the idea was for him to kind of be like my, uh, you know, effects guy you know colorization effects font stuff like that not like structure you know mm. and i bounced some ideas off of him i gave him some footage and he, he gave me some he had some good ideas for like you know effects and stuff like that but and then that was about it and but and that was a time consuming thing so we offered to make him an equal partner because because he the, the effects and all that stuff does take a lot of time but as far as story and production that was all my other friends and i and um so the movie's done, about to be released. I get sued for $300,000, and this guy wants to be the producer, editor, director of the whole thing. And in reality, like, it's like, what? So then that delayed that for a year. So all of the, I couldn't talk about it for a year. We offered to make him an equal partner. We're yeah. all gonna make no, make no money on this as it is. Right. And he wants all of the credit, all the stuff. What and, the fuck, what and happened? It turns out he was like a Foley artist. He, he was lied to me the whole time. He like puts, you know, footsteps in cartoons instead of instead of, you know, what he told me he was doing. And, um, but anyway, so that made that, that left a pretty sour taste in my mouth. Yeah. And, um, not only, you know, I, I, that project ended, it was well received and, you know, played some festivals and stuff and low budget as, as can be, but, um, you know, played a few festivals and uh, I ended that project with 30 grand in debt, in credit card debt because of that movie. And, um, a shitty taste in my mouth from the whole process, right? <laughs> yeah. I was yeah. certainly not eager to jump back into that thing. Yeah. And, um, but... And meanwhile, you're still writing. Yeah, meanwhile, that, was, that whole movie was made while I was a staff editor at that at the magazine. Right. And um, so the analogy would be like, if you build a house from scratch and you hire me to cut the grass in that, and then you go to sell the house a year later, like, right. no, it's, it's my, my house. house, bitch. You know, it's like, <laughs> what? You know, and I don't think, doesn't think so. You're hired to help help out, you know? Yeah. So that's kind of how that materialized. But um, um, so ironically, I started shooting with zinc. The 
the week I made my last credit card payment on that. I paid $290 a month for nine years to pay off that movie. You gotta stop financing shit on credit cards. <laughs> Tell me man. about it, man. <laughs> That's not how you do that. Jay. Well, when you wanna do it, if you wanna do it, if yeah. you have an idea, I mean, the reason I did that, if I had looked for, if I had looked for a, you know, crowdfunding or stuff like that, it would yeah. take me months and months and months to get that ahead of time, and I yeah. wanted to do that story in that window uh, that Zinc movie I'm talking uh, about. I right. want to do it in that window, and I believed in it, right. and I had done it in the past, and I was like, well, if I'm smart with how I allocate my time and my resources, cause all, in my mind, all I needed was the footage. It was right. all up here, and I had right. an outline. My kitchen wall looked like, you know, you know, tons of different like arrows and everything. I had like all the different scenes outlined, and the themes I expected to be in it, themes that I didn't expect that came up and how to inter interconnect all of those without narration. Stuff so like. how did you learn? I mean, you talk about this as if it were the simplest thing in the world. Like, oh, I decided to make a movie and then I you yeah, know, you got know. out my credit card and I made a movie. <laughs> like, Well, that's, I've had this, I've, you know, my parents were the first ones who probably asked me something like this, um, that I don't know. I just, it just made sense. It's like, I just, it's probably not that far of a stretch though from writing for a magazine because you have a same, you have a limited amount of space in the in print, right. and you're trying to use image to illustrate the point, right? And then you have a limited amount of time. But did you film. know how cameras worked and um, editing? I knew, I knew and how sound. cameras worked, and I taught myself editing. I, I you know, I taught myself editing. I took, I, I picked it up really quickly. Editing, like, I never read a book on it or anything. And I mean, I've edited two feature-length things by myself, and hmm. and I and I think that's a strength, honestly. Like yeah. any, anything that. Um, and editing is everything. You can you can take the every piece of material to build a house and throw it in a lot, but without you don't build it, you don't have a house, right? right. And um, so going forward, I, I'd like to be an editor, if not the editor, for any future projects going forward. But right. um, yeah, it, it sounds to me like you took this physical confidence that you described earlier, mm -hmm. and you just applied it to the rest of your life. Yeah, that's. I think you're exactly right because that gave me, and I had to get that new confidence in another area, right? Like right. I mentioned, I was struggling to figure out, I was fortunate for that opportunity in the magazine when I was a, as a, basically a kid, and I realized, okay, you can't fuck this up, you gotta, you gotta, I knew that that was also a good opportunity because in the world that I wanted to be in, that action sports or particularly mountain bike world, I was gonna meet a million different people because I was at a magazine where all the companies were talking to versus me going to work for, you know, a brand, right. and then I, I'm focused on what their goals are. Right. While I was at the magazine, I was able to do the magazine work, but then also, you know, engage with all these different people and have all these different connections. And right. that's ultimately what led to me moving to the Bay Area, because in 2012, I was offered a job from Specialized Bikes to work as their creative content producer. And, uh -huh. their, and their world headquarters are in the Bay Area, uh -huh. just near San Jose. Right, right. And um, I was reluctant. I went kicking and screaming, but they were on the short list of companies I was willing to leave my current role for. I mean, I was ready to move on. Because you were in a global sort of spot, and now you're moving to a more specific. Exactly. It's like the yeah. exact, what I just described, I right. was doing that by my choice. But I, Yeah, but you'd been there for a while, it, right. and you knew the world pretty well. Yeah, and yeah. I was ready for a new challenge, and I thought that, I kind of wanted, I really respected their company. I liked their bikes. I still do. I, I still ride them every day. This and is a good, this is a good moment to make an <laughs> announcement. <laughs> what do you think? Yeah, go for it. I think, uh, well, you know, people on the, who listen to this podcast regularly know that I, I hate advertising. I don't do advertising. and um, But occasionally, 
an opportunity comes up that I'm happy to, to uh, co cooperate and coordinate something. So I was, you you and I were in touch, yeah. I don't know, why, you listen to the long. podcast, yeah. or you read The Sex of Dawn or something, right. but you and I have been in touch for a while and uh, you just happened to drop me a line when I was, you know, I moved here to Topanga and I was looking around like, I got to get a mountain bike. This yeah. is mountain bike heaven right yeah, here. Yeah. It's like living in Nashville and not liking music <laughs> or something. It's like, what are you doing? So, um, so I was looking at mountain bikes and they're so fucking expensive. And I also, where I live is really nice, but from my house, it's uphill to anywhere, <laughs> like a good uphill climb to anything. So, uh, my buddy, actually it was Jake Johansson. Mm. I was, I was talking with him about, Hey, I think I'm going to get a mountain bike. And, and he was like, Oh, you should get an electric assist bike. Like mm -hmm. he's got when he lives in Venice. Oh yeah. And uh, we were having a coffee and we walked by the shop that had electric assist bikes. And I was like, do they even make electric assist mountain bikes? And turns out they do. And, you know, the sort of starting price is 3500 bucks or something mm -hmm. like that. And um, so then I, I decided I wanted one of those. But fuck, 3500 4000 5000 bucks. It gets insane. So I just got sort of stuck in all that. And then you wrote to me and I mentioned, like, I was thinking about doing this. And I thought you were going to say, like, you know, don't do it. That's a pussy move. <laughs> no way. <laughs> but you, but you were like, well, let me talk to some people. Maybe we can get you a sponsorship at Specialized. And so Ryan reached out on my behalf, and uh, Specialized came through. And in the next few days, I'm yeah. apparently going to have a kick-ass Viagra. Mutt. <laughs> I call it a Viagra bike. It, it gives you that little boost you need in your fifties. Yeah, <laughs> it's called the. Uh, it's called the Levo, I guess. It's yeah. a Levo. It's a electric assist mountain bike. It looks pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, it looks great. Um, and, and essentially, it's not like a. People think it's like a moped or something. Mm -hmm. It's not. You have to pedal. Yeah. It just like gives you, like adds a little right. extra to your. It's um, to what you're putting into it. And it's really great for, for exactly how you described it to me. It was you know, people who aren't avid riders like that already, and maybe leery of doing so because it's not like you drop four grand on a dirt bike you can anyone can go twist that throttle around the around the field right yeah. but but if you drop a few, few grand on a mountain bike you got to be committed mentally and physically to to yeah. be able to do it and yeah. the electric assist really is good at getting new riders into the sport i think it's i think it's pretty cool yeah yeah i mean i look i know myself well enough to know that i don't care how beautiful the bike is uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to take it out four or five times, come home exhausted, go, oh, really? Yeah. Fuck. And then the next day, like, oh, time to take the bike out. And, yeah, I don't know. It doesn't look like such a great day. And, <laughs> and maybe it's going to rain. And I just like, I wouldn't do it. But uh, I, I'm hoping with the electric assist, it'll be like, uh, you know, it's like everything else. It's like I never... If I'm in the gym, I'll work out. Mm -hmm. But getting up from what I'm doing and going to the gym, it just I'm not feeling it. Yeah, you know, just gotta. Yeah, so something that'll that'll make it easier to get to the place where I'm working out. Uh, I think that's a good thing. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. So. But I'm looking forward to it. Anyway, so that's our plug for Specialized. Yeah, yeah, and, and, uh, very organic and just it was just like you know I was like you were you mentioned you were interested in a certain bike and I said well you know. I know some people at this company, they have a nice bike and exactly the type you're looking for. So maybe something, yeah. something can come together, you know? Yeah. So the deal, the deal I made with Specialized is if I love it, I'll talk about it on the podcast a few <laughs> times. If I don't love it, I'll never mention it again. There you go. <laughs> so I'm not going to badmouth them. 
them, that's for sure, because <laughs> they, they've been really generous. But um, anyway, so you, you went to the Bay Area. Yeah, so you mentioned, so mentioned what I was working on. So basically, so this last movie, Reach for the Sky, came out at the end of 15, and, you know, I had taken it on all the, looking back, it's kind of weird that I had to, I don't know if it was delusional or what, but I'm taking on all this debt again with the hope that, you know, I believed in it, but that doesn't mean anything, right? And as far as financially, you know, mm-hmm. and um, uh, I had the hope that it would be well received <clears throat> so I could get my investment back. And, and obviously, I wanted only my goal was to do a good job for Cameron and me. And, in, and I thought in doing that, we have, there's a story I knew was in there, and that was the challenge I took on to tell it. And I, I felt like we felt like that was accomplished. And you guys were already buddies. Yeah, I yeah. met him when he was a teenager because I was working for a magazine as a photographer. But that, that you know, my, I'm eight years older than him, and I met him because a friend of mine was doing a video, like an action video, like the like music video action mm-hmm. style. And he was a young teenager who was in that, and I met him. And then he was also an accomplished racer too. And then he started having these injuries, and that's how he and I, I had gone through all those things he was now having for the first time. And I kind of like always kept an eye on him, and right. was like I wanted to help him because I saw his potential, and I also knew the frustration that that is. And um, but you weren't doing like tricks like that, no, right? You no, weren't we, doing backflips and all that. He started off in racing. He was a successful racer. Well, it's funny because you would think the injuries would would make him calm down, but it sounds like it had the opposite effect. He went for bigger tricks and crazy. He, he was kind of also in the pioneering of so. For those that are, may not be familiar with mountain biking, it's relatively new sport. It's only been around for like roughly 40 years, and the, the genres are almost a direct parallel with skiing. Okay, so if like if you look at a lot of people only see skiing during the Winter Olympics. So, but you've got cross-country skiing for endurance. There's cross-country mountain biking, which is like what a regular mountain bike is. Like you ride it on a Saturday, you ride to the top and you ride down. That's a cross-country. Then there's downhill ski racing. There's downhill mountain bike racing. So, again, totally different equipment different intended use downhill bikes are like at you go to a, a ski resort in the summertime they've got trails and they're marked green through black very same type of uh setup but they they have equipment or they have they have components that are um specifically designed to go down only like they're slacker and more suspension and stuff like that and then you've got the freestyle free ride segment where it's tricks and um backcountry type of free ride and that's that was kind of burgeoning in mountain biking at the time when Zinc made that decision to, to say, you know what, I've been the top junior racer, I, I'm blowing my knees out in my first year as a pro racer, and at that same time, um, that free ride segment was kind of becoming something, getting his legs, and he had always done the tricks also, but just for fun. Right. And now it's a chance for that to be to be a pioneer almost in this whole right. new genre. Right. And um, he is, and he was, and um, still, he's still you know, going now obviously but um so i forget where how i originally started this oh the 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 movie that you just wanted you took the debt on and oh so so then i mean i'm trying to think where it was but yeah so with that whole project i took on this amount of debt and i was like i just got the 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 first like the first check came and that would be like through royalties it's on itunes or vimeo it's on walmart.com i think like any any way you can watch a movie walmart.com it's funny i'll get these they get these royalty checks, and I'm just—I can just click and see where they come from. You know, right. sometimes the checks are forty-nine dollars, sometimes they're you know four thousand dollars. So right. it's, it depends, but um, I can see where it comes from. And I'm like, oh, that's weird. Like it's on K 
cable on demand right now. So it's like having a it's like having sex at dawn in every bookshelf in the world, but no one knows it exists. Right. <laughs> that's kind right. of where I'm at right now. Right. But um, that's cool. But it. Uh, that's great. Have you made back your investment? Yes. And Sweet. So thankfully, so that, that that's where I was. In the that's story. a hard thing to do in yeah. documentary films. Yes. No, people don't wait in line outside to see documentaries like yeah. they do Star Wars, right? Yeah. Like it's especially one with no marketing budget. Right. And um, thankfully, though, with my career i'm relatively connected in the media mountain bike media world and it's been well received mm. endemically it's been very well received right um but i still can't you know zinc's like the closest thing to a household name these days to like teenagers and 20 year olds in mountain biking and it's hard to get them to pull out a credit card and buy it on itunes right. so but thankfully it's people liked it and it's been licensed by red bull for their new tv network oh, and um, nice. outside it's been licensed by a variety of cable tv networks so that's what's helped me recoup my costs right and um so i learned a lot i mean uh, i know where i was going so, so the movie comes out at the end of 15 i get my first royalty check in the beginning of 16 and i'm thinking okay it's had two months of press it's had you know it's getting great reviews and all the stuff and i get the check and i was like i have over 10 times this in credit card debt of the first check I'm like I'm in trouble because like if it because it's novelty is only going to get you know thinner right? right so so then I decided well shit so much for taking this momentum into a new project right away I had to give myself a teach me uh, MBA in marketing and just I've been schlepping that thing around for a month you know for a year while I trying to recoup my cost you know just contacting non-endemic media and saying because it's not about bikes it's about like in yeah. the same way, like you or I might make like a movie about a boxer or a race car driver. Right. We don't do those sports, right? But we, can, yeah. we can appreciate the. No, uh, it's about story. personality right. and risk and yeah, so I, adversity. So I tried yeah. to kind of get eyeballs on it, non-endemically, just in like sports media type stuff like that. And um, so that was the the last year. So that was sixteen. I was basically trying to do the business side of that project. And also while doing that, I've outlined it a outlined and budgeted uh, another feature length documentary that I that I believe in and two um, kind of ESPN 30 for 30 style programs, action sports based, but they're that style and they're budgeted and outlined, but I'm, and I'm, I believe in them too, but I just, it's like if you run a marathon every day for two years, it's like, and you take a day off and people wanna know when the next time you're gonna run a marathon, you know, yeah. it's like I, I, I wanna do, I'm doing a few other things right now before I jump into those, but um, who knows, maybe in a few months, one of those will, get underway are you you're not still at specialized no yeah. no i left there um at the end of 14 because um, i had so i basically shot that reach for the sky on my weekends and vacation days for uh, over a year yeah because and i i told them i was doing this project and it wasn't going to interfere with my job there and it didn't that's why i used my own time to do it but it got to a point where i had all these ingredients i needed time to cook this recipe yeah. and it also had to come out before the the 2015 of that same event because I wanted it to be uh, I wanted it to be like use that as a marketing right. tool and also keep it relevant. Right. Um, it's not a time sensitive project by any means, but as far as marketing, that made sense. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So I left Specialized, and at the same time, I at the same time I had all the footage for the movie, and all the holes in my outline were, were filled with things you know with my, my treatment I wrote. I sent that to a distributor and they're like, yeah, if you can deliver this, here's your contract for worldwide distribution. And I was like, perfect. So I thought, sweet, iTunes, you know, people in China or wherever are going to be buying this. It's like, I don't have to wear, I don't have to get an MBA to, to it's not going to be like my first movie. It was all DVDs and no one knew about it. Right. right. I, the, so, but I learned quickly that that's not the case, you know, that 
they give you they give you the, the platform to have it available, but the marketing side is still very much up to the producers. Right. And um, well, from from my experience anyway. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's how I. So that's the last year I spent focused on you know recouping those costs. So and, why are you still in the Bay Area? The Specialized got you there. Yeah, they got me there. I left there at the uh, end of fourteen, basically, and then so I edited all of fifteen, the whole the seven days a week, day and night, and. Um, in my kitchen by myself on a computer in my kitchen and then uh um just i don't i'd love to get back to santa monica and venice but i've got you know i've got like eight bikes tons of tools i need like either a you know i was fortunate to live with my friend brian reed who had a nice condo with a garage and stuff and i had plenty of space yeah okay you know but looking at a one-bedroom apartment it's 2500 bucks and there's no garage and i'm like yeah. shit i'm in a i've got a comfortable living arrangement i live up by berkeley yeah. and um I don't. I love it down here, and it's on my radar for sure, but hasn't been a priority. Yeah, and no, I I think about it a lot. You know, like live. I love the Bay Area, mm -hmm. and uh, I lived there in San Francisco at various times in my life. But right now, it's like, are you kidding me? Yeah, it's I know. incredibly expensive. Yeah, and and so I think about you know, and I'm on this on this van trip this summer. I'm I'm looking. One of the things I'm looking at are like interesting small town America options, you know, because oh, I yeah. think there's kind of a movement of young people who can't afford cities. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you get enough interesting, creative people in a little town, it becomes a mecca of yeah. like everything you love about a city. But it's, you know, now with the Internet and everything, right. it's so I don't know. I actually, Cassie and I looked at Moab, Utah, yeah. little, little too Utah for our taste. But <laughs> Your bike would be good there. Yeah, yeah. Cool town. I, I mean, town, whatever. But the, the area is amazing. Um, yeah, I, Colorado, some interesting places. Yeah, Zinc, um, he's born and raised in the Reno area. Yeah. So I spent a lot of time there. And that's another reason why I didn't move back to L.A. I was only roughly two and a half, three hours from him to visit, to, to do if I needed to do something, oh, right. versus, versus nine if I went yeah. back to L.A. And yeah. It was just, that was convenient, and then um, just things have taken off. So while I was outlining those other projects I mentioned that are potential at this point, um, I started a couple different... Can you talk about them at all, or you want to keep that under um, I'd rather just, I mean... Is it mountain biking? One or? of them is a mountain bike documentary about a guy named Kurt Voorhees, who was Zink's mentor. He's, in, he's actually in the movie. Uh, in Reach for the Sky, there's a bit of a who's who of the action sports world. He's got Travis Pastrana, Sean Palmer, there's a bunch of um, some Adam right. Jones. They're all like on that Nitro Circus. Anyone who's like, you know, into that, they know those names. Right. And, um, uh, but this, the Voorhees one is outlined. I wanted to do it right after the first movie I made when I was, you know, 15 years ago oh, okay. but he um, obviously the wind was out of those sails pretty quickly and mm -hmm. but this story is it's still there um, I'm trying to figure out it's budgeted and outlined but I don't know the delivery format because I just you know how I explained the the issues of distribution and recouping costs I'm like I'd love for his story to be like just free on YouTube and that would take some investors obviously to make that happen right right or or whatever the delivery format is that's kind right. of what's holding it up I'm not I don't want to get in this exact same scenario as it was yeah you know, recently yeah. but um and then the other two are not time sensitive well none of them are time sensitive but it's just kind of like a 30 for 30 style of programming i think i think my affinity towards this type of stuff it's like i i don't watch i don't read much fiction i read i read a lot but i don't read much fiction really and um other than like tom robbins and vonnegut and stuff like that but mm. um uh irreverent yeah yeah <laughs> and um uh what what, what's your favorite vonnegut book 
Oh, let's see. I like Slaughterhouse Five. Yeah, yeah. that's incredible. <laughs> yeah. That's such a great book. But then, like people like Robbins, he's just so humbling. Like I read him, and then, you know Michael Lewis, for example. I read his books. Oh, I'm, Michael Lewis. He, he's great, right? But great. when I read that, I'm yeah. like, man, this is research. Like he's just compiling and or, yeah. re, there's so much research. I read someone like Robbins, and it's like, wow, he's just. This is just so. Um, just mind expanding and like just I'm just really humbled by reading someone like that you know because I can't yeah. I, if I, if I read Michael Lewis I'm like oh I can probably I can kind of guess or imagine how that process went to get to this point yeah someone like Robbins I'm like I've got that's just in his head you know what I mean yeah. or his knowledge as his of theology and stuff yeah yeah no it's I find all those guys humbling I mean especially having written a book now mm-hmm. I can appreciate you know like you making a documentary film you watch a film like you know, whatever, uh, in, into thin air. And you're yeah. like, man, I know what it took to get that footage and, you know, how many hours of editing is in yeah. there and I all had, that. Yeah, I had 12 terabytes, 12 terabyte drive full. <laughs> and full. so the first... So you have to, like, cut down to, to you know, seven, nothing it's an seven, hour. Really 70 minutes, yeah. yeah. So, um, so the first two months of ed- making that documentary, all I did was organized footage. Yeah. Because I was like, okay, these are the themes. This is the story arc and group it by theme, by person, by, yeah. by subject. And then I just started editing in just by audio. Yeah. And then I had 12 terabytes of, of the archive footage. All the stuff that we shot was on state-of-the-art equipment, like red, red cameras and right. high-end equipment. But all of, thankfully, Zinc's dad is a really good photographer and did uh, a ton of home movies. That's right, you got a lot of archival so stuff that, there. So that yeah. is just priceless for that project. Yeah. And um, so wrangling all of that was fun. And working in the bike world for so long, if I'm like, ah, oh, man, I wonder, if I don't have a photo of so-and-so from 2007, I've got 20 people on my yeah. phone who probably do. Right. And so many right. people were generous with their time and archive footage. It really it really revealed that they wanted to see this get made, too. Right. And That's cool, because they know the story. They right. want other people to yeah, hear it. Yeah, it definitely. That's definitely part of, the, part of that um, experience. Um, but, like, yeah, the first few months, like, I would call my friends, like I mentioned before, Brian and Derek, who, you know, worked on many many like features like Bruce Willis movies and John Kerry movies and X-Men movies you know so they're, they you died in the wall that, that right. stuff. and I called them I go so uh, for three months now all I've been doing is organizing shit and like listening making sure audio and they're like I go Gosh, I, had to, I had to hear what I was doing out loud to to make sure it made sense you know yeah. what I mean because that's what I thought because I was like when you sit down and think about I'm at a how do I get to B and I was like well I I have to know everything I have first. Right. First step to do. So I, I would just go through it all. And when you shoot for 18 months, you know, you forget what you did. Yeah. You know. But ironically, the, like the very ending scene, I used the audio from the very first interview I did with Cameron in June of 13. You right. know, like you know, no one, no one, no one knows that, right? Yeah. But like it's funny. I you had to go back and find stuff that see where it all fits in. And um, the creative process is like that. It's mm-hmm. funny how you can, like, you have to, you have to. I don't know how to describe it. It's it's like you have to build a castle and then you knock it all down except for the one room. Yeah. And often it's the room you started with, but you had to go through that whole yeah. thing, you know? Right, very much. And to, to your point, like someone asked me like what that process was like somewhere along the line. And I said, well, you know, it's like having a dump truck full of other people's sentences dropped into your driveway. And yeah. someone goes, okay, now write a novel with the other people's yeah. words. Use those words, yeah. So it's, yeah. And, that's, and that's fine. And that's, I think, so it goes back to your, your question a while ago. It was like, how do I think I can make a movie? Why well, I, I do that same process with w- other people's words and in, in writing stories for right. magazines and stuff. Right. So it's, I think I, I approach it in that same way, which I don't know if it's the right way or not, but it's it's, it's the way I know how to do it. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's, it seems to be, 
And you also, you know, you learn a lot when you're, when, I wasn't certainly by any means in the spotlight, but but at 22 to 35, when I was in my, my first magazine job, or 22 and a half to 34 and a half, yeah. And then, um, you know, everything I did is criticized by the public, right? So that's a kind of in, in your back of your head and you kind yeah. of you learn to be just tighter, right? You learn to mm. take it more seriously and you learn to like, no one else is gonna clean up your mess basically, you know? And, mm. and, you're, and, you're, and my boss relied on me to have my shit together as close as possible to make it presentable for his, with his name's on the line too, right? right? So like, you know, that that certainly helped. That, that And working for that magazine, you know, I was on the hook for half, well, often, many years, I was on the hook for half the words and a good chunk of the photos of a, of a, of a monthly worldwide magazine. Wow. And yeah, so, um, you know, it's probably 80 pages of editorial. Right, so you, not, not you get used to, to producing a lot yeah, as well. Yeah, you get used yeah. to meeting deadlines and you get used to, you know, closing one project and just move on. Yeah, 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 and um, that's. I think that's invaluable. I mean, that's what I made during that job is completely irrelevant to the to the confidence I acquired by seeing projects go from beginning to end. Right. You know, and just, so do you, are you going to move into other? Uh, I mean, the kind of lessons and the techniques and the interests that you have for mountain biking. Mm-hmm. I mean, that could be applied to mountaineering or rock climbing or skiing or you yeah. know. Uh, these fucking guys in those glide suits. Oh yeah. Jesus. See now that oh, to me is something only bad can happen in that scenario. <laughs> like you know those things like that. Yeah, that's, but could you imagine that sensation? That would be fantastic. Oh. Yeah. But um, <laughs> oh man. Um, actually, Cameron Zink, his his daughter's name is Ayla, and he's named that after McConkie, this famous skier who d- died doing that wingsuit stuff. And his daughter, I think, was named Ayla as well. And uh-huh. she's born in the movie, so there's a lot of drama that goes Ayla. on. Ayla. Ayla's also the name of the the woman in Clan of the Cave Bear. You oh, ever yeah. read that book? Uh-uh. That's a beautiful book. Yeah, it's a uh, the in the movie. Uh, Ayla is played by Daryl Hannah. Uh-oh who's the first person to ever ask me sign a copy of Sex at Dawn. Oh, yeah, I heard you, I heard you mention that. Fucking crazy. <laughs> crazy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah Clan of the Cave Bear, beautiful, beautiful book. Uh, highly recommended right. in terms of, uh, you know, early sort of Ice Age humans. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, Ayla, anyway. Okay, yeah. no, I'm, I'm in the so, middle. So I wonder if that's where McConkie got the name for his daughter, yeah. That's a very good, there's a documentary about him, too, McConkie, that came out about a year before. Was he and did, was he like best buddies with a dude who was profiled by Sixty Minutes? Um, Probably, because I remember seeing this thing on Sixty Minutes about this guy who had been a ski jumper and then he got into the wingsuit stuff. Yes. and he and his buddy were supposed to be profiled in the Sixty Minutes thing, but like three months before they did it, his buddy died. Mm. Um, doing a jump and his ski didn't yeah. come off or something, yeah. and so it fucked everything up. It, was it was it a I'm not like in the Alps or somewhere. Yes, I'm not. Um, I'm casually a, a, a fan of that type of stuff, but um, it's a JJ something. Is it, it might be the guy that was on? Oh no, I'm thinking of a surfer. Um, yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure. Yeah. But, anyway, so yeah, anyway. but we were talking about the uh, transferability of this sort of yes. like. Are you interested? So are you still writing now? Yeah, so I'm on. I'm, I'm a contributing writer and photographer for, for Bike Magazine. I do I'm on the hook for uh, you know three or four things a month with them, and um, and then that kind of and I have a couple art sites I'm doing now um, where I'm just making pop art designs of my photography that I 
I have a surf one in progress, and I have a uh, mountain bike site that's already underway and going. It's kind of my canary in the coal mine. I'm just like doing all the products, like you know, these designs on shirts or laptop cases, stuff mm. like that. And then, and then um, that exact same type of thing. I'm gonna explain that out to like surfing and motocross and um, skateboarding and go on from there. But I'm getting my the first site dialed first as a template to work from. Um, but you know, to, to that to answer your question, I've been thinking I'd. I'd I'd really like to do kind of like an Anthony Bourdain style of show where I travel around the world to these fascinating mountain bike destinations and really embed myself in the culture, go on great rides, but yet really oh, yeah. not so make it not as much about the food as it is about the uh, culture, so not about right. the riding as it is the, uh, you know, the, the culture. That yeah, and right. I think, it's just a way to get there. And I was actually working on something like that for a long time, and then um, the recession hit, and the guy who was going to be my the bank on that one you know lost his job and mm. that kind of that kind of ended that and I spent about a year and a half kind of outlining and working on that and that was around 2007 or 8 probably and I've revisited that recently and you know in my mind and I think there's something there but um the thing about bikes that that is so compelling I mean I had a motorcycle for seven years and I fucking miss it like crazy mm-hmm. there's something really satisfying about mounting something i don't know if it's like horses or (laughs) what it is but there's some there's something about just getting on a very simple thing and riding on it you know like whether it's a motorcycle or a bike or whatever i mean i can remember as a kid on my bike just being like riding my bike around in figure eights in the driveway and getting into a trance and just going and going and going i mean this i think you're right and i think when a lot of little kids, it's their first kind of outlet of, you know, being autonomous. Yeah. You know, and yeah. it's like, I remember being, I could, like I mentioned before, I picked up things quickly and I was two and a half years old and I took the training wheels off my bike myself and was riding, my parents came home and I was riding around the driveway. Or my dad came home from work and I was riding around without training wheels. Started racing a few, couple years, three years later. But um, I remember just being fascinated. I had, I had an older neighbor who had like a, a mongoose BMX bike and I'm like, you know, two or three years old or whatever. And that was just like, I didn't know what it was. I just knew I had to have something like that or I wanted to do it. And that's where it all came from. And I mean, thankfully, my parents were so generous enough that they let a little kid pursue something like that. And and, I mean, not, I mean, not often, I mean, not a day goes by and I realized that I was fortunate that not only did they let me do that for so long with their time and money, it's extremely expensive. And, you know, that's how they spent their weekends for almost a decade. Doing Following you around, yeah. And then um, and then they put me through college, too. So I'm, I'm grateful for the both. I was able to combine both those things for what yeah. I'm doing, you know. Yeah. And, um, but, but, yeah, you're right. There is something there where it's the, uh, I don't know if it's a sense of, first sense of, like, freedom or first sense of doing, realizing you can go wherever you want kind of thing. Yeah. You know? <laughs> well, and the reason I mentioned it was I was thinking about your Anthony Bourdain <laughs> idea and, like, how... You could be in Mongolia, mm-hmm. you know, and people are going to get it. They're going to yeah. understand a bike, yeah. you know, because they're on horseback. They, they know exactly oh, yeah. what it is. And everybody's ridden a bike. So right. you could show up with some really cool, you know, you know, electric assist uh, mm-hmm. turbo levos and, and people are going to get it. You know, mm-hmm. even, you know, they're camel people in fucking Yemen or something. They're going to understand what you're doing. And, yeah. Huh. And they'd be able to jump on and do it themselves. I and mean, you get some really cool footage there, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Interesting. Because it's like music. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, whatever. You show up with a guitar, they play a coro, they can figure it out. It's the mm-hmm. same thing. Everyone's ridden a bike. Hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah, the, yeah there is a, a universal kind of, um, and in some cultures, it's the prominent way to get around, too, right. you know? So yeah, yeah. There's, so we'll see. Maybe I'll get that outlined here in the next few months. Yeah, that'd be good. Come on, specialize. Yeah. Throw some money at it. <laughs> yeah, but we'll see. I'd like to move back down here, but it's just... Um, it's kind of a casual priority. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that even if that's even a thing. But um, yeah. So do you have your like? Is your your focus at this point is more writing or more filmmaking, or you want to keep doing both? Um, I mean, I really like my scenario right now with Bike Magazine because it's I have I'm I do a few things a month. I can kind of pitch the things I'm interested in, and they're usually down with that. And um, it keeps you know one foot on the bike industry side, but I also now like the freedom that I, I mean the risk I took ultimately making that last movie was to be work from you know to work for myself and kind of you know just kind of do the projects that I really wanted to do that challenged me you know mm. and um, I mean I'm close to being in that scenario where I can have you know a couple little side things and then get these get these other projects kind of underway once they're once they're yeah. ready um, but yeah but but I think it would be I'd like to do more on the film film side and I kind of want to get into more of the just the narrative writing as well I've never I've never maybe it's because I don't read much fiction I don't have much confidence that I could write like a fictional story rather mm. than me compiling information to, to tell a story right but um we'll see you know but I really like I really like dialogue and banter I've got notebooks full of stuff I think are just funny premises mm. that could be worked into dialogue somewhere along the line you yeah. know and yeah. and that's I think about that all the time but um again I don't know it's Maybe it's the resistance that I need to get through from the War of Art or whatever, right? <laughs> yeah, oh, the War of Art. Yeah, that's a good book. Yeah. Yeah, Rogan recommended that to me. I, I read it and I bought like ten copies to yeah. give to people. I gave that's... one to my sister too, and, so really? and a couple of couple of friends. And um, yeah. you know, when you were doing Sex at Dawn, with your background, um, was that was the where did that premise come from? Was that something? Was that stuff you had just read over the years? You know, like there's I want to tell like these different cultures and how they do it or does that or is that predominantly research to tell that story well i mean that depends what what you mean specifically by the premise like the if you're talking about the specific idea of how human sexual evolution yeah that came about when i was in grad school okay. and uh I think it was around the time Bill Clinton was having his whole mm -hmm. thing with Monica Lewinsky, you know, mm -hmm. and I, I was, I mean, I've told this story before, but I was like, um, looking at that situation and I thought, you know, this is really weird because men have ruled the world forever and here you've got the most powerful man in the world being publicly humiliated for doing basically what pretty much any man would have done in that situation, mm -hmm. you know, like, yeah. Hey, you want a blowjob? No. Yeah, right. No. Right. <laughs> Sorry. You know, like, uh, and, and his, it wasn't like his wife seemed to be that upset about it. It seemed to me like they sort of had an understanding. Yeah. So I was just like, what's going on? Like, if men have ruled the world forever, how did they design a world where the most powerful guy is getting humiliated for doing what a lot of guys would have done? It just doesn't make any sense, you mm -hmm. know? So I... I that led me to a book called um, The Moral Animal Yeah. Okay. Uh, by uh, Robert Wright. And that, is, that was about this new science at the time. This is the early 90s, I guess, 
uh, this new science of evolutionary psychology. Mm. And so I read that, and it's a really beautiful book. It's, it's each alternating chapter is a, uh, like it's a biography of Darwin, mm. and then there's a chapter of theory, and then mm. back to the biography, back to the theory. And each biographical chapter illustrates in Darwin's life a principle that was explained in the previous theory chapter. So if it's about, you know, whatever, inclusive fitness or, you know, mating behavior or this or that, whatever, they'll talk about the, the he talks about the theory and then he'll show, tell some story from Darwin's life that sort of illustrates that. So it's really easy to read and, you know. You know what book is similar to that format is uh, Michael Lewis's uh, The Blind Side. That movie is ah. the Sarah, uh. the movie, but right, I forget her act, actress's name. Um, uh, I don't think I saw that. It's not Brad Pitt, is that? That's the baseball yeah, movie. Yeah, no, it's the the Blind Side about the football player from Tennessee. Oh, um, oh, right, right, with uh, the woman. Um, yeah, yeah. I Sandra forget. something. Sandra Bullock. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so that so I, that book is very similar. Where like that whole book is about the evolution of the offense in football, right? It's about uh -huh. the, and, it, and it all take. It's all because of. The evolution of the offense happened because a guy named Lawrence Taylor was just starting to beat and sacking everybody from the blind side. And, to, and then, so therefore, uh -huh. the quarterbacks no longer were like the, they were still the highest paid players in many ways. However, most quarterbacks are right-handed, so their blind side would be the left tackle, the, the lineman on the left end. And that guy be started becoming, you know, they wanted the biggest, fastest guy they could find to, to hide, to cover uh -huh. the blind side no of the quarterback. Yeah. So they used, they used that Michael Orr story of that young kid in, Texas uh, or something. Tennessee, I believe, oh. moving in with the family and all that. Right. Well, that's just the, that's just the vehicle to illustrate the entire concept, and uh -huh. that's and that's what they plucked out for that movie, right? Because right. right. when I saw the, I remember, I was in the airport and I saw like being a, I'm a, you know, football nerd. When I was a kid, we didn't have cable, so all I would do is just watch those free NFL films tapes that came with the Sports Illustrated and the VHS uh -huh. tapes. That and the, I would I'd just rent stand-up comedy stuff and watch that over and over too, and. Um, so, I'm mean, just a huge football nerd as far as, up until my 20s, until I got kind of into other things. But um, I saw this the cover of the book, the hardback, from across, I think I was in the Dallas airport, and it was just like this black chalkboard, like X's and O's, and I walked over, and I was like, oh, this is interesting. And I read the whole thing, I think, on the flight, you know, mm -hmm. and, and I was like, this is, and it was relatively recent, because it was, you know, Reggie Bush, living in L.A., Reggie Bush was, and he's referred to in the, in the book, so I must yeah. have come out, you know, yeah. relatively recently, and um, I was just fascinating, because... And then I saw, then I, when I see what the movie was, I was like, give me a break. I was like, this is going to be shit. I never did see the movie, but I can't see it. I mean, it can't, surely it's not shit, because I think they won a bunch of awards for it. Yeah, it's, but, a, it's a compelling story. Yeah. Michael Lewis is such a great storyteller. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I'm not really interested in most of the things he writes about. Mm -hmm. Like Wall Street, yeah. baseball. I don't give a shit, man. But it's like he tells the story so well mm -hmm. that he makes you give a shit. And he he really shows you what's fascinating about whatever he's writing about. Yeah. He's, he's so fucking good. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, wait, you're talking about football. Oh, have you heard? There's a really interesting... Um, is it This American Life or... No, maybe it's Radio Lab. Uh, they did this thing about football and uh it was a story about the early days of american football how, how it came from like the military not in the indian yeah, reservations and stuff. yeah the indian yeah. reservations and and how like the forward pass 
came about at the same time as the Wright brothers and yeah. everything was about flying. And did you hear yeah, that? I, I, it's yeah. so fucking good. And it's also had all these people, you know, all these young boys were trained to be in the, in, into war, going to war, right, for all that time. And then they know where to. And there was, yeah, and there was like, oh, the American man is losing his, right. you know, masculinity. Right. And uh, so the football became this focus. Outlet of, for that, right? Yeah, yeah. 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 And, um, and this uh, the Jim Thorpe, the, right. the, the American, American Indian, Indian school was kicking everyone's ass. Right. Uh, even though they were like Harvard and Yale and all those mm-hmm. guys were twice their size, yeah. but they kept, they were innovative and, and the they, coach was really. They kept changing all the rules to make the, yeah, to, to, the like, to screw over the Indians. To screw yeah. over the Indians because they, every season they'd win and they'd be like, fuck, no more of that. Yeah. yeah. So you, you know, you're talking about Bill Clinton in, um, a moment ago and that kind of spurred, you know, being an expert in, you know, I'm going to wait till this wind chills out. Yeah. Um, but being an expert, you know, in human sexuality, when you see someone like Melania and Trump. Is that was that like a literal example of what you re- you referred to as the standard narrative where a woman would ch- give trades um, just seeks out a man for resources and in status? Is that yeah, seems like that might it be a, seems like a pretty, <laughs> a pretty literal example of yeah. that, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean it's I mean you yeah. know when Anna Nicole Smith does it, yeah. you know, that's you know what a what, yeah. a, what a gold digger, right? right but when exactly. Trump is, Trump's right. What, born in 1946 or something? And I think, I don't know if his wife's even 46. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I think she it might be, but um, it, that's just a successful man, right? That, that's, that's how that's perceived, you know? Successful, in, in air quotes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. Money gets a lot of d- ugly dudes laid, that's for sure. But. Yeah, yeah, it does. It gets them laid by a certain kind of woman. Yeah. Which, you know, I don't know. I guess, pow- I guess money and power probably have do that and, and the guitar it's had a pretty good long the run guitar. too you know it's like <laughs> yeah you get a yeah you know you see like neil young and keith richards like oh shit. hey neil young's with daryl hannah now no way bringing yeah. it bringing it all around <laughs> yeah you know that because no, he was married know. for like 28 years or something um he was like one of those examples of the rock and roller who oh, right. stuck with his wife and oh, everything yeah. but apparently um they've split up and he's with daryl hannah i like a I like the, I, I respect ugly rock stars. I think it's I think it's important. There are a lot of them. Yeah, you know? you know, it's like you see these guys. I don't know these newer boy bands or like Goo Goo Dolls. I'm like, you guys are too handsome. You know, it's like it's, too, it's not fair to always be a rock star and yeah, good looking. Exactly. Yeah. Like, I mean, you know, that's why I like you know, Interpol. You, you know, they're they look like they're all like the poster children for like fetal alcohol syndrome. Or something. <laughs> it's like those guys have not, if those guys weren't rock stars, they'd never get laid. You know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or Rush. Yeah. Who, who's fucking Getty Lee? You know, over the years. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. All right, listen. Uh, I, we could talk about rock star sex for another hour or two, <laughs> but true. I know you, you're driving up to San Francisco. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Here yeah. in a bit. Yeah. So. Thanks for doing this, man. Yeah, man. It was a lot of fun meeting you. Fun. Appreciate it. Yeah. Good luck in your future stuff. Oh, thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Thank you to everybody who supports the podcast through Patreon.com. You can decide how much you want to give the podcast a buck a month, five bucks a month, 10 bucks a month, or you can get completely crazy and give 20 bucks a month or more. Or you can give nothing. If you don't have any cash, don't worry about it. Just enjoy the podcast and tell your friends. The other way you can support the podcast is if you buy shit through Amazon.com or you know someone who does 
does, please direct them through the link on my page, chrisryanphd.com. You click on that baby once, bookmark the landing page on Amazon, and then 8 to 10% of whatever you spend will come to support the podcast at no extra cost to you or your loved ones. Thank you to Basin and Range for that opening music at the beginning of the podcast. Very funky little tune there uh, called The Bright Side of the Sun, I believe. You can find out more about them at Basin and Range band.com if you want to talk about the podcast with other listeners a good place to do that is on reddit just search tangentially speaking all one word there's a community of a couple hundred people in there chatting about the episodes i drop in occasionally and say hello answer questions whatever uh thanks to shore design t-shirts our garage is full of them my mom has them all organized as only she can julie thank you to julie my mom she'll send those t-shirts out to you if you order them Everything we've got in stock is from Shore Design T-shirts in Thailand. And you can check out their webpage as well for other designs. Thank you to Carsey Blanton. You can find out more about Carsey Blanton at CarseyBlanton.com. C-A-R-S-I-E-B-L-A-N-T-O-N.com. She wrote and performed the song you're about to hear, which is called Smoke Alarm. And it's a reminder to carpe fucking diem while you still can because... Ladies and gentlemen, you're going to die one day. Here's to you, Bennett. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you've ever known Is headed for a headstone I don't wanna give the end away But we're gonna die one day body is an animal doesn't ask for much a little music and a soft touch why don't you let it out to play your heart is in a bird cage singing in your chest you want to shut it up but give it a rest you're gonna die one day to the ground.